Wendell's world in sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right. Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. Konnichiwa, what's happening? What's going on? K-Posse, mi amigos. Mi amo y Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. Konnichiwa, shalom. Wassalamu alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Namaste. Bonjour, bonsoir, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports, so glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss, as I mentioned before, in the world of sports. We've got some college football to talk about, we've got some NFL to talk about, we've got some Bill Belichick to talk about, we've got some Lisa Montgomery being executed to talk about, a lot of things going on that I want to get to. So, I hope everybody is doing great, and I hope everybody is doing what they need to do to make this place, to make this world, to make your block, to make your community, to make your neighborhood, to make your region, to make your state, to make your city, to make your country, to make this world a better place to be. Listen, learn, learn, listen, educate yourselves, listen to those who don't look like you, who might have differences than you, and learn and grow because we all need to unify, harmonize, and come together as one, regardless of race, creed, color, gender, political affiliation, and such. So I hope everybody is making strides to go ahead and do that. Some small, some big, but I hope that we're all moving in the same direction, which hopefully should be the right direction, even though we know that's not going to be happening. But we can hope, we can pray, we can dream. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us all around. All right, man, let's get to this. Things to discuss, starting off the podcast today, Alabama, the national champions, destroyed Ohio State on Monday, 52-24. to It was Alabama's sixth national championship in the last 12 years, their 18th overall in school history. They finished the season 13-0 and in one of the most dominant, at least offensive-wise, one of the most dominant seasons in college football history, and it was Nick Saban's second undefeated team at Alabama and Alabama's first undefeated team since 2009. Devonta Smith was beyond unstoppable. Jeez, man. 12 catches, 215 yards, three touchdowns, all in the first half. So if he didn't get injured and the game was remotely close, how many catches would he have had? 24 and 430 with six touchdowns? Jeez, man. Mac Jones went 36 to 45, 464 yards, five touchdowns, the most yards and touchdown passes in a championship game. Najee Harris had 158 yards in scrimmage on 29 touches, including three touchdowns. Had uh, The offense had 621 total yards. Could have gotten 800 if they wanted to, if they felt like it. And for the game, they had 33 first downs. There were eight of 11 on third and fourth downs. And they had the ball for over 37 minutes. I give to you the most dominant team by far in the year 2020 in college football. We welcome the Alabama Crimson Tide. And the way that they're going right now, I can say with some pretty good strength and some pretty good bass in my voice that this Alabama team, this Alabama football team, is the most dominant dynasty going right now in sports, in college athletics, 
I don't know what's happening in swimming and diving. I don't know what's happening in lacrosse. I don't know what's happening in Division Two and Division Three football. Maybe Mount Saint, maybe maybe Mount Union Division Three can raise their hand and say, uh, "Excuse me, you want to talk about domination homes?" But in terms of major D one sports, and we'll even bring women into this as far as the basketball is concerned. The only team that can even come close to the dominance, they, they, they superseded it. But in terms of on the same tier, in terms of domination. The UConn women's basketball team, Gina, Gina Ormiema and those young ladies, that's the only squad in college athletics in terms of basketball and football that can come close to what the um, Alabama Crimson Tide are doing. And, and as I mentioned before, UConn might be more dominant uh, in their situation, but still, I mean, those are the only two te- uh, only two programs that can have the conversation about how is it, how does it feel to be dominating your sport so alabama is the um the cream of the crop the fruit of the loom and every other cliche you want to use to uh talk about their dominance nothing that ohio state could have done there were no coaching decision made or didn't make that would have changed the outcome you can't sit there and blame ryan day about this move or that move or this decision no trey trey sermon oh, 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 oh was injured on the first series of the game, okay, that didn't make a difference. Ohio State was not winning that football game. Three Ohio State players, including an offensive lineman, a defensive lineman, a kicker, they were ruled out because of COVID-19 protocols. Okay, that's 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 not good, but they weren't winning that football game. That wasn't the difference. People talking about Ohio State punting from the Alabama 44-yard line down 14-7 to early in the second quarter. Like somehow, someway, that was like some big move. Do you guys remember? Do you remember what happened after they kicked the ball? Turned out to be the right move for Ohio State because they caused a fumble by Jones, gave OSU the ball and the opportunity to score, and then they did to uh, tie the score. So that decision didn't backfire at all. And then later on in the second quarter, Ohio State kicking the field goal from the six-yard line at the end of a nine-play drive instead of going for the game-tying touchdown to make the score 21-17. Like somehow, someway, that was supposed to be a big difference in the game. Following that field goal, Ohio State said, uh, I mean, uh, Alabama said, oh, okay, these guys want to go ahead and um, make this, try to make this a ball game. Uh, Let's go ahead and uh, put this into fourth gear. Touchdown, touchdown. Ohio State had back-to-back three and outs before finishing the half by running out the clock. And as I mentioned before, Alabama went 75 yards on five plays. Smith called a five-yard touchdown pass with 202 to make it 28-17. Then Ohio State, as I mentioned before, goes three and out. Oh, oh, uh, Alabama said thank you very much. Went 60 yards on three plays, taking only 41 seconds to make a 35-17. Devontae Smith, Devontae Smith again, 42-yard touchdown pass, 35-17. And that officially, unofficially ended the competitive nature of the college football national championship game and put a close to the end of the college football season. No OSU's X and O's were going to beat Alabama's Jimmys and Joes. It's just the way it was. And Ohio State, it wasn't like, oh, man, you know, we could have done this or we could have done that. Ohio State played well. It wasn't a situation where Ohio State lost the game or, or anything like that. Justin Fields, the quarterback, he didn't do anything to hurt his draft status. Didn't help it, but he, he could have gone 50 for 50 for 500 yards and 15 touchdowns and 
gun on the field and play defense and intercept Mac Jones five times and hold Devonta Smith to two catches and stop Najee Harris. He could have done all that. He wasn't going to be drafted number one. Trevor Lawrence is going number one, so he really wasn't going to be able to do anything to help his draft status. And as time goes on and we go through the combine and we go through the nitpicking and we go through the interviews and we go through all of these other things, the background checks, there's going to be, Justin Fields ain't going anywhere in terms of that number two pick, regardless if the New York Jets traded or not. So the fact that he went 17 for 33, 194 yards, one touchdown, 67 rushing yards on five carries. He wasn't setting the world on fire. I mentioned before in my last podcast that for Ohio State, they even have a a, a slight chance of winning the game that Alabama was going to have to be off and Fields was going to have to do to Ohio State or Fields was going to have to be for Ohio State what Vince Young was for Texas against USC back in 2006. I think Fields could have been Vince Young two times better than what Vince Young was in 2006 in that Rose Bowl. And I don't think it would have made that big of a difference. Alabama was still going to win that game. So it wasn't a situation where Justin Fields came up short in a situation like that. No, the team he was playing against was just a lot better. Ohio State as a team, they ran for 147 yards. They averaged five yards per carry. They didn't turn the ball over. They didn't make any stupid mistakes. They didn't uh, do a, uh, they didn't get called for a holding or a pass interference or a roughing the passer early in the game on third down that gave Alabama new life. No, 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 no. None of that narrative applied to this championship game on Monday. It was just a situation where this is the best college football team since the, uh, you know, this season. And now we can go ahead and start making the, you know, how good is this team? And is Alabama the best team of all time? And where does it rank? And blah, blah, blah. And where did they go from here? I remember a couple of years ago when people were sitting up there talking about is you know, which team is the best team in the college football playoff era? I remember in 2018 when Clemson went 15-0 that everybody was talking about this is the best team, this team is unbelievable, blah, blah, blah. This is going to go down as one of the greatest teams in college football. Then in 2019, LSU came along the scene and blew out everybody and with that offense and Joe Burrow and those guys and the the conversation and the opinion switched to, oh my goodness, well, you know, 2018 Clemson was so 2018. Now we're talking about LSU with the 2019 LSU Tigers. Are they the greatest offensive squad that's ever played college football? And this was so unbelievable. And Joe Brady and Bill Walsh and Sean Payton and all these guys rolled into one. And Joe Burrow, it was just so magical. And so we went with that argument. And we went with that discussion point for about a year. Then now we're going to do the same thing with Alabama. Oh my goodness, Alabama, I can't believe it. This is one of the, you know, is this the most dominant team in the playoff football era and blah, blah, blah. One of the best offensive teams in recent college football history. I know that. I mean, when you average 40 and a half, 48 points per game and 541 yards per game, yeah, that's pretty doggone good. When you have three of the most prolific and accomplished offensive weapons in college football history for at least one season, yeah, I'm going to say that uh, the discussion can be made at least when you're speaking about 2014 Ohio State and 2015 Alabama and 2016 uh, uh, Clemson and, and and those schools. Yeah, you can have that conversation with some strength if you're going to be mentioning, uh, if you want to bring up the argument that Ohio State is the most dominant team, at least, again, offensively 
And again, hey, what Joe Burrow and LSU did last season, really impressive. But damn, Devonta Smith, the Heisman Trophy winner. You're talking about a guy who has 4,000, almost 4,000 careers receiving yards, which is the most in SEC history. You're talking about a guy who had 1,865 yards this season, most in SEC history. You're talking about a guy who in one season had 23 receiving touchdowns, which is the most in SEC history. You're speaking about Najee Harris, the running back, who finished in the top five in the Heisman Trophy uh, balloting. Finished his career with 57 touchdowns, which is tied for the most in SEC history. And he got a late start because, really, he didn't start really picking things up in terms of being the main back until his junior season. But when you can score 30 touchdowns, excuse me, in one season, which is, guess what, most in SEC history, yeah, that's pretty That's pretty doggone good. And then Matt Jones, the quarterback who finished third in the Heisman Trophy voting, he had the best statistical season of any quarterback in Alabama history. I'm talking about had a bigger impact than Joe Namath. I'm talking about a bigger impact than Kenny the Snake Stabler. I'm talking about even, even hold your hands on this one, hold your hand on this one, don't roll your eyes at me on this one. He had an even greater impact than Greg McElroy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Finished the season in which he completed 77% of his passes with just four interceptions and 402 throws through for 4,500 yards and 41 touchdowns. Yeah, when I start bringing up those type of statistics, when we're speaking about Jones and Harris and Smith, and then you talk about the strength of the offensive line, yeah, it's pretty good. You're right in the ballpark. When we're speaking about, let's start naming the most dominant teams since the uh, college football playoffs began back in 2014. Now, you can make the argument that, you know, while the 2018 Clemson squad might not have been as prolific offensively and had the weapons that the 2020 Alabama Crimson Tide had, we're also speaking about, I think, the Clemson defense at that time where they had like three or four draft picks just on their defensive line to begin with. We're speaking about Isaiah Simmons, who was the linebacker still on that team. We're, we're speaking about maybe an overall team Clemson, you could throw the 2018 Clemson team in there and say that, well, with those guys and the offense that Clemson had, that, yeah, they weren't going to shut down Alabama. They weren't going to shut down Mac Jones and those guys. But guess what? If you can hold this Alabama squad to 31, 28 points, Clemson definitely had the offense. And on Alabama's side, Alabama this year did not have the defense that that could have held a well-oiled Clemson machine of 2018 to 24, 28 points a game. And you're also speaking about that 2018 who gave Nick Saban the worst beating that he ever had as a college football coach, especially if you're talking about the beatdown that they gave him at the championship game in the 2018 season where they won 44-16. So, look, and then again, you have someone like LSU. If you want to go ahead and argue about LSU being the best team since the college football playoffs began. I mean, you had Joe Burrow and you had Clyde Edwards-Alaire and you had that, that great squad who... Oh, I don't know, beat that Alabama squad that just won the championship game this season. You beat them um, last season. And I believe in that game, even though he was injured, Alabama had a better quarterback than Mac Jones, if you're speaking about Tua Tunga-Vailoa and uh, what he did. So the argument can be made either way, but that's the reason why all of this stuff is so fantastic. And, and the bottom line is that 
when you start having these conversations about who's the best, who's the best, who's the best, who's the best over the past five, six, seven years, it only comes down to a couple of squads. So you can have the same argument. Well, you know, who's who's better looking, Halle Berry or um, Selma Hayek? You know, it doesn't matter. You can go with either one and you'll be happy and you'll be doggone very happy. And uh, the same thing with if you're going to choose between, if you have the number three pick and you have to choose the 2018 Clemson squad, you should be very happy. If you have the number two pick and you want to pick the 2020 Alabama Crimson Tide, you should be very happy. If you have the number one pick and you want to draft any one of those three teams, you should be very, very happy. So, look, it's just semantic and it's just good fodder for thought and discussion and all those things. Wendell's World in Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Head coach, Dick Saban. Nikki Saban, the one who hangs around with the duck and makes those commercials that I just can't get enough of. One of the best college coaches in history. Again, I'm not going to sit here and say that he is. Yeah, he won his seventh national championship, the most in the uh, Associated Press poll era. Breaks the tie with Alabama Paul Bearer Bryant by, for the uh, most championships by a uh, major college coach. Okay, we, we, we can go ahead and, and, and say that. I, I never say this guy without question is the greatest of all time. Now, of course, common sense is going to tell you that when you're, when you're as accomplished as Nick Saban and you start talking about who are the greatest college football coaches of all time, he's, he's at that table. He's at that award ceremony. He's in that section in the club. He's in that VIP section in the club along with guys like Eddie Robinson and Bobby Bowden and Joe Paterno and Bear Bryant and those guys. He, he's in that club. And those guys can... Those guys can sit down and have a discussion and they can decide who's better and who's the greatest and all those type of things. They have a better idea than, than, than I do or you do or anybody else. But just in terms of accomplishments is concerned, yeah, man, uh, Nick Saban. And you also have to remember that the way that they crown a national championship now is the most definitive way that anybody can crown a championship in the history of college football. There is no BCS. There is no coaches poll. There is no other nonsense. They, when they um, decided who was going to be the number one team, I mean, Bear Bryant was the coach for Alabama for a couple of decades. So he went through different stages of how they would, would determine who won the national championship or who was considered the best team in the country. In some of the years, they voted for the national championship at the end of the season, didn't even wait till the uh, end of the bowls. So there was a couple of instances. I know there was at least one where Bear Bryant's Alabama squad was ranked number one. Then they went to the bowl game and they lost. And there was a couple of other situations where in the AP, they were ranked number one. In the coaches poll, they were ranked number two. And so it was a split uh, national championship at that time. The way that Nick Saban is winning his championship right now is the purest form in the history of college football because, oh, I don't know. They're playing in on the field. Now, you can go ahead and you can make the argument that, you know, four playoffs is not good enough. And he won a couple during the BCS era. And, you know, they need to go to 18s and this, that, and the other. But the way that they're doing it right now, the way that they've been doing over the past decade and a half is the uh, best way to do it. So when we're speaking about it, that's not to say that if Alabama of Paul Bear Bryant's era didn't have the same type of uh, um, situations that, Nick Saban did that thing to be different. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying that, you know, the seven national championships that Saban has 
received or has uh, his team has won and over the couple of um, championships that he's won during the BCS era, I guess now this makes it, what, three? They beat Clemson, they beat Georgia, and now they beat uh, Ohio State. So the three that he's won during the college football playoff era, yeah, I mean, that's 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 without question. Nobody's going to sit there and be like, oh, yeah, you know what, Alabama won this championship, but you know what? If the people who decided who were the top four teams were, if they just wouldn't put in Cincinnati, shit, I don't know. They wouldn't put in Texas A&M. Woo-wee. If Alabama had to play Texas A&M or Tennessee over Notre Dame, could be a whole different. No, it couldn't be. It, it wouldn't make any difference. So when Alabama won their championships during this present era of how they crowned a championship in college football, they beat the best team that was available. Clemson was no joke. Georgia was no joke. And I know that Ohio State had played only seven games going into the championship game. But what they did against Clemson, which now looks more like an aberration, uh, they weren't no joke either. And so Alabama took care of business against the best that college football had to offer for each one of those seasons in the college football era that they won that championship. And again, I'm, I'm thinking the only team, I guess, if we're speaking about dynasties here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. We're thinking about, what, the past five, six, seven years? How long the BCS been around? Not the BCS, but the, um, the college football playoffs. How long have they been around? Well, six, seven years, something like that? I'm thinking the only two teams, the only two teams that could really say that, you know what? Hold on, hold, you know, slow your roll on Alabama's the, you know, next Peter Butter and Jelly sliced bread type of deal. It would be maybe Ohio State on an Urban Meyer, 2014 to 2018. I mean, they went 59 to 7, so you're speaking about a winning percentage of around 90. They won their first college football playoff. They beat Oregon, and they beat Alabama. Nick Saban, Urban Meyer beat Alabama. Uh, in that semifinal game, 42-35, when Cardell Jones was the quarterback because JT Barrett uh, was injured and he couldn't play. So I guess, and, and you couldn't make the argument, if there's one coach in the Nick Saban era of him being the coach at Notre Dame, the one coach who could claim got the best of him. But I don't even know if that term is right, got the best of him, because it's not like he was beating them every single year. But I remember when Urban Meyer had that squad running strong at Florida, that he would beat uh, Nick Saban. Now, there was one instance where, under the Tim Tebow era in the SEC championship game, I think it was 2009 when Alabama went on to defeat uh, Texas in the championship game. But for the most part, during that era, Nick Saban was losing to Urban Meyer. And then Meyer, you know, wears himself out and goes, takes a few years off and then goes back to Ohio State or goes to Ohio State. And they play Alabama with uh, Saban again. He has a different squad. Second year at the coach with the uh, Buckeyes and beats him again. Now, Ohio State and Meyer never went undefeated. And they only played in the playoff once. And I just remember all of those squads that Urban Meyer and Ohio State had where you looked and said, man, this could go down as one of the greatest teams of all time. Especially, I think, what, what, 2015? 
when you had those guys coming back and they were ranked number one with a bullet and they had Jones, Cardell Jones, and they had JT Barrett and they had, I don't know if he, uh, Elliot was still on that team. I just remember that team was fucking stacked and people were speaking right out the gate in September. Oh shit, is that the best team that's ever going to be playing football and blah, blah, blah. Is anybody going to give Ohio State a game? They could blow out everybody by 30 points. This is ridiculous. And Ohio State every single week played down to their fucking competition. And it was like, what the hell are they doing? Why are they not putting it in full drive and just blowing the fuck out of people? And it finally caught up to their ass when they lost at home to Michigan State. That was that was one of the most underachieving teams, I think, over the past 10 or 15 years in college football. If you, again, go back and take a look at that roster for Ohio State. And you take a look at the talent. And you take a look at those players that were drafted. And if you could just remember some of the games that they played when you were scratching your head going, what the hell is going on with Ohio State? Why are they having Penn State? Why are they having these inferior teams still be in the ball game, you know, midway through the third quarter? Yeah, I know eventually Ohio State's going to pull away. I'm not screaming upset, upset, upset. But why are they only beating Wisconsin by 13 when they should be beating them by 35? Why are they letting... Northwestern be within 17 points of them when they should be up by 42. Maybe that's unfair. Maybe that's unrealistic. But the talent gap that season between Ohio State and everybody else was so far that was like, man, if these guys just tried a little bit, that they would just blow these guys out. But my point is, is that um, OSU and Urban Meyer might have a little bit of an argument to make, but, but not much. I'm just trying to figure out what teams can we bring up? What dynasties? What many dynasties? Because when the college football playoffs started, it's almost like a clean slate in terms of determining, okay, now this is the next era where we're going to be speaking about 10, 15, 20 years from now, or at least until the college football playoff expands to 18. We're going to be in a period right now where we're going to be discussing, okay, between the beginning of the college football playoff to the time when they change it to 18 to be determined which team was the most dominant. The college football playoff era, which team was the most dominant? And the leader right now is Alabama. And this is not really just based on their dominance in 2020, but again, I'm thinking to myself, okay, it wasn't Ohio State. Meyer had a chance to do that with Ohio State, but it didn't happen. And then he, you know, he did what Urban Meyer does at big time situations, you know, burn the candle at both ends and damn near kill himself physically. So that eliminated and Ryan Day is picking up the torch. But I mean, this was a situation again where you can't include Alabama, uh, you can't include Ohio State in this discussion. So that leaves me with Clemson under Dabo, right? Isn't that the only guy? Isn't that the only college football program, Clemson, that can hold a candle that can raise their hand and say, wait, 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 wait a minute. Hold on for a second. From 2014 to the present, once the playoffs started, Clemson under Dabo, he's 89 and 10 overall. We're speaking about a winning percentage of around 90%. He won two national championships. He played in the playoffs six years in a row. I mean, you can argue that they were the best football program from 2015 to 2019. If we're speaking about recruiting classes, that, yeah, Clemson's recruiting class of that era outperformed Alabama's. 
They went 69-5 overall. That's a 93% winning percentage. They lost Alabama 45-40 in the championship game in 2015, Deshaun Watson's sophomore year, junior year, something like that. But then they went on to beat them twice. They beat them in the championship game in 2017, 35-31. I think that uh, Deshaun Watson throwing that pass near the uh, end of the game. And then the 2019 championship game, again, where they gave Nick Saban his worst loss I believe ever, definitely in the Alabama era, where they beat them 44-16. to And that 2018 Clemson Tiger team, as I mentioned before, they went 15-0, and which was the first time in college football history that a football team won 15 games in the season. So make the argument, make your discussion points. All I'm saying is that the 2020 Crimson Tide of Alabama, hey, man, is right up there. And um, despite the fact that College football is becoming regional by the by the second, and maybe this you know this uh, uh, rule enacted in which players can go ahead and they can use their likeness and and their name to go ahead and make a little bit of money and everything. It might spread the wealth of talent a little bit around, but if you take a look at the recruiting classes and you're speaking about the top recruiting classes moving on to next season. Same old, um, same old actors, same old programs, Alabama, Clemson, Georgia, LSU, Ohio State, same, same folks, same folks. So I don't know, man, we'll see what's going on moving forward. But Alabama this season, Dominant, Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Speaking about the domination of Ohio State being, or Alabama being dominated, uh, dominating Ohio Ohio State in the championship game. Taking a look at some other teams that were considered the greatest teams in college football history. Because now when you're speaking about Saban, now when you're speaking about this juggernaut called the Alabama football program, and you're speaking about his longevity, if you take away Saban's first year at Alabama, came in, he was seven and six. After that, man, This guy has just been whooping some ass. So we're speaking about 2007, Saban came in, Alabama 7-6. But from 2008 till the present, Coach Saban has an overall record of 163-17. in the most difficult era of college football. He's 95-11 in the SEC West. That's an 86, that's a 896 winning percentage in the toughest conference in college football. He's won the SEC West Conference nine times. Eight seasons, he's been undefeated or lost only one game in an entire season. Eleven times, he's finished the regular season undefeated or one loss. And he's finished in the top five nine times. And he's won his, he won his sixth straight uh, bowl game on Monday night. Oh, and by the way, the most important thing for uh, players when they're determining a program, they produce 33 first-round draft picks over that time period, six Pro Bowlers, five Super Bowl champions. Bingo. Who's going to compete with that? So we're speaking about, what, what is this again, 2008 to 2020, so 12, 13 years? I mean, there's been like many streaks of, of dominance from teams, as you're speaking about the 93, 97 Nebraska team, which had Scott Frost, and they won a championship and sent off Tom Osborne with a 
Happy, happy, joy, joy. There's been some other squads, USC of 2003, 2008, before they got put on probation, and Pete Carroll bailed after they lost to, uh, you know, their chance to really make some noise as being a great all-time dynasty was lost when they um, were defeated by Texas in the 2006 Orange uh, uh, Rose Bowl. They had Reggie Bush and Matt Liner and Lindell White and Mantel Teo. I mean, not Mantel. Mantel Teo played for Notre Dame. But, you know, they had, to, they had it seemed like USC was putting in, you know, awesome pros year after year after year. But, again, if you remember that dynasty, 2003 to 2008, that's not approaching what, Ohio, what the Alabama is doing right now. Florida State, 1987 to 2000, what do you think? They were pretty good, but damn, it seemed like they were losing to Miami every year. Won two national championships, won 88% of the games, nine conference championships, final five rankings 14 times. But again, the only thing we remember about Florida State and those Bobby Bowden teams is wide right, uh, wide left. And they weren't even the best team in their own state. Miami, the U. I mean, culturally, they had an impact that's greater than Alabama's. The team of the 80s. Their reign lasted from 1983 to 1992. Four national championships. Two conference championships. Eight times they were top five in the final rankings. Won 88% of their games. You just remember the swag. You just remember, I don't know, you want to call them the Oakland Raiders of college football. If you want to call them the Georgetown Hoya that the Patrick Ewing-led teams where, you know, they were very polarized. Either you loved them or you hated them. Um, they were definitely Black America's college football team during that time. Won their first championship under Howard Schnellenberger in 1983, then won one under Jimmy Johnson in 1987, and then Dennis Erickson in 1989. <sighs> Erickson also won one in 1991. And finished number three in two other years. But man, I guess the only thing that really hurt Miami, if you want to put them up against this dynasty with Alabama, is that Fiesta Bowl lost 14 to 10 against against uh, Penn State, where Vinny Vinny Testaverde gave uh, gave evidence of what he was going to be doing in the pros when he threw five interceptions in one game. So it's tough, man. I mean, how far do we have to go back? I'm not going back to the Johnny Lujak days and the Nuke Rotney days and the Army Navy and Doc Blanchard and Glenn, Dar- uh, Glenn Davis days. I, don't, I wouldn't even, I'm not going back to them because I never saw them play, but at least for my lifetime, Alabama, what they're doing, you have to put them up there. Now, they're going to have some challenges, I think, from Clemson, but Clemson, as I mentioned before, they started their run in terms of being the dominant football program of the era back when they got Deshaun Watson, and that was somewhere around 2013-2014. Alabama was still winning championships, so the longevity you have to put with Alabama. Nobody in college football is doing what they're doing. I mean, you have flashes in the pan. Ed Orgeron, what did he do that was supposed to be the heir apparent to the dominance of Alabama? How, how, how long did that last? And LSU going forward, moving forward in 2021, do those guys still have a quarterback? Are those guys going to try to get Joe Brady back? What are they going to do about a defensive coordinator? So there's a lot of questions about that. Kirby Smart, I mean, he's recruiting his ass off at Georgia. I mean, Georgia has has a hell of a recruiting uh, class every single year. Have they won a game so far of any importance except for 
the uh, semifinal game in the Rose Bowl against Baker Mayfield in Oklahoma. The talent that they have. I mean, how is Justin Fields looking now? Kirby wanted to stick with Jake from State Farm instead of um, giving some type of light at the end of the tunnel to Justin Fields, so he transferred to go to Ohio State. How did that work out for you as Kirby went through quarterback after quarterback? Now, JT Daniels might be the guy. He might be the quarterback that they've been looking for, but what Justin Fields did for Ohio State and the impact that he had, if I'm a Georgia fan, I'm sitting there shaking my head going, what the fuck, man? What in the fuck? We chose to stick with Jake Fromm and let this guy go? WTF. So I'm still waiting for Kirby Smart to uh, win a game of any substance, or at least a couple. Ryan Day in Ohio State? Okay. All right. That might be somebody who eventually could supplant Alabama what they're doing. But again, they haven't won a championship since, what, 2014? And we, I don't know. The, I don't know what the what the Big Ten is going to be looking like next season and the season after that. I know that um, he's recruited or he's got this kid McEwen, right, with the Cody McEwen or some nonsense like that, the, whatever the kid's name is, the top quarterback recruit in 2022 who decommitted from Texas, and he's supposed to be like this next wonderkin. Oh, my God, I can't believe it. This guy's going to be winning Heisman trophies and setting the world on fire and be the face of college football, that type of talent. That type of player, I think he's going into his, uh, is he's, a ju- he's a junior right now, right? Yeah, he's a junior right now. So he's, like I mentioned before, the 2022 class. So, you know, may- maybe Ohio State, maybe that'll be the guy. Maybe that'll be the quarterback if he stays three years that will have the momentum to catch up with Ohio State. So, but the mustard is still on the Alabama Crimson Tide. So relish the opportunity to see what you can do to beat them. You know how Stadler started with ketchup and then moved the mustard and then relish the wordplay on my part is just high-five me. Thank you. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So Ohio State, nice try. Alabama, you're the national champions. The college season is over. It was a good year. The 27 recruiting class for Alabama. Congratulations, fellas. You did well. Two national championships could go down as one of the best recruiting classes in the 21st century. You're ranked number one in that. You're ranked number one in the nation that season, ahead of Ohio State, ahead of Georgia, who had a strong, really strong recruiting class that year. So they were ranked above those guys, Ohio State, Georgia, USC, Michigan. They had 29 commits, six five-star, 18 four-star, four three-stars. Najee Harris came from that class who was like the number two player. I don't know who the number one player was, but I remember he was the number two player in the class. Alex Leatherwood, the offensive tackle, who's going to be drafted in the first round. Dylan Moses was in that class. Jerry Judy, who declared early, and now he's playing with the Denver Broncos. He was in that class. Tua Tunga-Bailoa declared early, now playing for the Miami Dolphins for now, unless he's going to be traded to Houston. He was in that class. Diedrich Willis was in that p- class. Devonta Smith, Henry Ruggs III went on playing now with the Raiders. Mac Daddy Jones was in that class. Here's the thing, man. And it's like, oh, man, every single fucking year Alabama gets the number one or number two recruiting class. This is bullshit, blah, 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 blah. Let me tell you something. Um, yeah, you have the Najee Harris, the five stars. 
and the Dylan Moses and the Jerry Judys and the Tua Tunga Vailoas, all of those guys, high prospects, high-end prospects. But did I mention Matt Jones? Because one of the key players on this team this season for his dominance was Matt Jones. Matt Jones wasn't some Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields type of recruit. Matt Jones wasn't being recruited by any was wasn't being recruited by everybody. Was some high five star recruit that everybody had to have. Matt Jones was a three star recruit from Jacksonville, Florida, who loved and adored Tim Tebow. He was a number three hundred ninety nine ranked recruit in that class, the fifty first ranked player in Florida. So leading the way, finishing in the top three in the Heisman Trophy for Alabama, was not some guy who was who was ordained to be this great. Mac Jones with the quarterback came under the tutelage of Steve Sarkeesian, the head coach and, and uh, Nick Saban. And look where he is now. He's part of 15 players that many people are saying, you know what? Those guys are going to be drafted uh, at minimum. 15 of the 29 uh, players will be drafted eventually. Some are already there. It's just speaking about Judy and Ruggs. So yeah, Nick Saban and the squad and the program that he's got at Alabama right now, juggernaut Gino Ormiema of the Connecticut women's basketball team, he knows about dominations. Those are the only two that can have that discussion. Those are the only two with the knowledge. Those are the only two with the feelings that knows what it likes, what, what, is, what knows what it likes to be that dominant. Alabama Crimson Tide. Roll Tide. Roll Tide. World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us as I'm recording this on an early Wednesday morning. I'm watching the replay of the Lakers and the Houston Rockets. Jeez, oh, flippity flop, man. What the fuck is going on with James Harden? A little rotund. Hasn't gotten himself into complete shape yet. I guess he went to the Nikola Jokic, Luka Dantich School of Offseason Conditioning. Which, of course, might be a little bit different because I don't think Luca or Nicola is hanging around the strip joints in other places in Vegas and Atlanta. I'm quite sure they're hanging out in Europe doing whatever they're doing. But, uh, yeah, James Harden looks out of shape, has a bad hairstyle, and uh, this just ain't working out for Houston, man. I mean, look, I, you don't want to give James Harden away for 30 cents or 40 cents on the dollar. I get that. I understand that. But this is going nowhere. And Raphael Stone, hey, man, give you a high five, a handshake. You duped my Washington Wizards into getting a first round pick along with John Wall for Russell Westbrook, who 
Looks like he has aged overnight. He's going to be out with a hand injury. And John Wall looks a lot better than I thought he would, even though he's not going to be doing back-to-backs. And we're only 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 games into the season. So there's still 60-something more games left to go. So this is not something that's set in stone in terms of who won the trade between Westbrook and Wall, the Houston Rockets, and the Washington Wizards. But at the end of the first timeout here in this contest between this game, Houston has a sizable lead on the Washington in the who won the John Wall Russell Westbrook trade. But again, as I mentioned before, early, there's still three and a half quarters to go before that game is decided in terms of who won. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Nice to be off. I was off of uh, work today and then last Wednesday, and then I'm off the 18th. Man, no wonder the kids in Clark County ain't, ain't uh, learning anything. They're always taking breaks. We're always on uh, vacation. We're always uh, taking some time off. Man, not get good kids out here, smart kids out here. Just joking, y'all, just joking. But as I mentioned before, watching the uh, replay between the Rockets and the Lakers, 28-10. to 10. The only thing I want to talk about as far as the NBA is concerned is the COVID. Games being canceled, where are we going to be going now? The fact that the NBA is not playing in the bubble. That How about that? Games are being postponed. The, the uh, Tuesday game for the uh, for NBA TV between the Pelicans and... Oh, shit, who were they playing? I knew New Orleans was playing somebody. Was it Oklahoma City? I forgot who it was, but I was getting ready to watch that game. And Was it Monday, Tuesday? I don't know. I was watching, getting ready to watch some game, and they said they had Sam Mitchell and Isaiah... Isaiah Thomas on, no disrespect, but I'd rather watch a game. So, it's the way the NBA is right now, man. They're going to soldier on. It's like football and just like baseball. And it's like, we need to cancel some games. We need we need to rearrange some games. Then we're going to have to go ahead and do that. But uh, it's another situation for NBA franchises, NBA teams, and NBA coaches to deal with. So, on my upcoming podcast, since the NBA, since the NBA is going to be the lead star with the NFL season now winding to a close. Of course, you got the playoffs and the Super Bowl and all that kind of stuff, but the NFL is on the back nine of its season, so I'll be concentrating more and more and more and more and more on the NBA, which is now, as I mentioned before, starting to get into full swing. Three-point shot by Harden, front rim right, no rebound taken down by Christian Wood, who is having a fabulous offensive season. Defensively, he's for shit. But yeah, NBA, still love it, still watching it. Not as much as I should, but uh, enjoying the day off, enjoying enjoying recording this podcast right now, and enjoying talking to you. Que pasa, mi amigos? Me, I'm Wendell Wallace. What's going on? Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So I was discussing about the college football season now that it's, now that it's over. I guess Alabama being the champion of the season, no doubt about it. Huge win for college football, despite everything that went down. College football playoffs, four prominent, well-known football programs participating. Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, Notre Dame, win, 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 win. Alabama winning the championship win. Now, they wish that possibly it could be a 45-42 score or something a little bit more competitive between these two teams. But... Again, no controversy. No, I can't believe this team didn't get in. Or, yeah, this team won the championship. But what would have happened if they would have played this team? But because of some decision made by the selection committee that everybody's shooting and screaming and shouting about that it didn't happen. There's no ambiguity in this. Alabama, the best team, win for 
college football. Despite everything that went down, no player or quote-unquote student-athlete, J-O-K-E, for the student-athlete deal. None of those guys, no one of name recognition became deathly sick or died from catching COVID. Yeah, Trevor Lawrence came down with it, but we didn't have a situation where, you know, he was on his deathbed or, or anything like that. So players who did get COVID, no big deal. You're still living. The main thing for college football is concerned is that the games were played, the money was made, despite the fact that there were no uh, people in the stands for the most part. So, all in all, with the circumstances, with the op- obstacles that they had before them, hey, give it up for college football. Way to go. And I was thinking about this the other day because I was listening to a discussion. I think I was listening to the uh, Yahoo Sports uh, podcast a little while ago, and they were discussing about you know the possibility down the road of college football players who are high draft picks, who are going to be high draft picks, that we, we, we've seen the trend started already to where these minor bowls, Christian McCaffrey and Leonard Fournette and others, when they were coming out, they were like, nah, I'm, I'm not playing in the, you know, who gives a fuck bowl or the, you know, second tier bowl or this is nothing but an exhibition bowl or something. Those, those, those minor bowls. But McCaffrey and those guys were like, nah, I'm going to skip that and get ready for the NFL draft. Joey Bosa, uh, Nick Bosa, excuse me, Nick Bosa, Joey's brother, he... Once he pulled his groin for Ohio State, he was like, yeah, I'm done. Um, and that was in the middle of the regular season. He's like, yeah, I'm done. I'm, I'm not coming back, y'all. So regardless of what happens with this team, I'm going to go ahead and get ready for the NFL draft. And we've seen the success of McCaffrey, even though he's been injury prone. We, we've seen the success that he's had. We've seen uh, Nick Bosa, again, he's missed the season because of injury. But we saw the impact that he had when he was healthy, his rookie year in San Francisco. We, we've, we've seen these guys deciding not to, uh, you know, be the uh, great teammate, this, that, and the other, play for your brothers, play for the good old university and all this kind of stuff, the fan base and blah, blah, blah. You know, all that cliche bullshit. We, we've seen that it hadn't hurt their, hurt their draft status and it hasn't hurt the impact that they've had uh, when they reached the NFL. So Wetzel and... Pat Forty and those guys on the Yahoo Sports uh, po- football college football podcast, they were talking about there's going to come a time where you're going to be seeing a Devonta Smith or uh, Justin Fields type of player or have that type of impact on a program who's going to be playing in a national championship game or whose team is going to be in the college football playoffs. They're going to say, nah, I'm good. I'm really not interested in playing. What's winning a championship in college football means? Not much. I'm going to be somewhere drafted in the top five or top six or maybe number one. And I'm not going to do anything to jeopardize that by playing two more college football games. So good luck, you guys. I'm out. And it kind of got me to thinking that, you know, that's true for those type of players. But the majority of those players aren't going to have that opportunity. The majority of those football players, and not we forget, even with a team as talented as Alabama, where we think that if you're going to be a scholarship athlete football-wise at a school like Clemson or Ohio State or Georgia or in Alabama that you're going to be going to the NFL, for the majority of those people, that's that's not going to happen. So it's like, what does winning a championship really mean to these, to these athletes? And it's, I came with the thought that, well, depends on when you plan to live your life after college. 
When you really want to start living life, man, when you're 18 to 22, come on, man, we know this, right? When you're 18 to 22, you ain't living real life. I mean, come on now. When you're a student, scholarship, no scholarship, whatever, man, you ain't living life. You still got mommy and daddy at home for the most part. You know, you still have that youth. You still have your stupidity of youth. You still have the vitality of youth. You still make these stupid decisions of youth. You still got some type of, um, you still got some type of uh, landing, soft landing spot as a youth, for the most part, different situations, different financial backgrounds, different situations at home with the parents, if you have a parent, guardian, whatever, you know, dictates what I'm saying to be valid, have some validity or not. But for the most part, when, when you're young and you're a student athlete, you're 18 to 22, come on, man, you don't know anything about what real life is all about. Once you get out of college, once you have to now start getting a job and start fending for yourself for real, that's when you find out what life is all about. So between the ages of like 22 and 27, 28, man, you're, you're just beginning the last stage of your life because this is real life from birth to about the age of 19, 20, 21 for the most part for, you know, for a lot of folks, it's just, you know, this is just the exhibition season. Once you get out on your own, that's when the real season starts. That's when the bullets start flying for real in a lot of instances. Some, they start that process even earlier. But getting back to the point, if you win a championship for Alabama and you're up there and you play living in Birmingham or Montgomery, Huntville, Mobile, Hoover, Tuscaloosa, anywhere in the Alabama region, when you play for the Alabama football squad and you're playing for Nick Saban and you win that, yourself that championship, like a lot of these guys on the 2020 uh, team are going to are gonna be, have the opportunity to have and they're not going to be going to the NFL. Or even if they get a cup of coffee in the NFL, they get a call up, they're on the practice squad, they spend a season or two in the NFL. That championship ring, the experience of playing on that team and winning that championship is so much more valuable than any college or master's degree, unless you're going to be going into medicine or unless you're going to be going into law or engineering or something like that. But for the most part, for guys who are going to be getting business degrees and they want to start their own business, for guys who are getting communication degrees and they want to uh, get into the communication field, for those who might want to become a teacher and might want to get into the teaching field, this championship or that championship ring that you received, man, that puts you at the head of the line before so many other people with these high degrees and their GPAs and how many years they finished and their internships. None of that stuff means jack fucking shit. If you play for the Alabama football team and you won yourself a national championship and you can walk into a... You can, you can do a Zoom meeting or you can do an interview on Zoom with an employer and you can show them your championship ring and you can also send them over your letter of re recommendation by Nick Saban. That trumps... Oh, I said that word. I said the T word. Sorry. That supersedes everything that uh, comes before it. It's the same thing in Ohio State. If you're going to be playing for Urban Meyer and now Ryan Day and you're going to be trying to get a job in Columbus or Cleveland or Cincinnati, do you know how much clout playing for Ohio State has in certain regions of the country? 
Do you know how well, if you're going to be staying in the state of South Carolina, playing for Dabo Sweeney and playing for the Clemson Tigers, winning that championship when they did, do you know how far that's going to go for someone's career when they start living, when they start having children, when they start to get married, when they start having a mortgage, when they start setting up for retirement, when they start when they, when they start investing in stocks, when they want to make sure that their kids are good enough to go to college, when they kids want to start participating in other things and they those babies start becoming adults and young kids and teenagers and going through puberty and all that kind of nonsense and setting them up for their future and their education. Do you know how important that championship ring is going to be for those guys who won a championship for Ohio State in 2014, who won a championship for Alabama in 2015, who won a championship for Clemson in 2016, who won a championship uh, during those times? You know how important that's going to be? You know how hard it is, man? It ain't what you know, it's who you know. So you think you think if somebody, for instance, five years, let's say, for instance, Mac Jones flames out as an NFL quarterback, and after five or six years in the NFL, being a backup, being a third string, whatever, he decides, you know what, my career is over, and instead of moving back to Jacksonville or just, or staying in the community that drafted him, that he goes back to, uh, let's say, for instance, that he returns to the state of Alabama, and he wants to get into a, he wants to start a business, and he needs folks to invest in his business. Do you know how easy it's going to be for him, or do you know how much more easier it's going to be for him to walk into a bank, walk into the local bank in Montgomery or Birmingham or Mobile, and ask for a loan when you have a letter of recommendation? by Nick Saban, when you have a situation where you can walk in with showing your championship ring, where you can talk about the Nick Saban years and talk about winning the championship. Do you know how big of a person that guy is going to be in town? If you're speaking about Montgomery, Birmingham, if you're speaking about a guy who wants to get into broadcasting once his career is over and he wants to get back to the uh, Alabama area in those cities and he wants to be on a sports talk radio show or he wants to do something like that, do you, know how, do you know the opportunity that he's going to be getting, whether he's good or not, no matter what his experience is? Because he played on the Alabama football team that won the 2020 National Championship? Fuck yeah, man. That beats any type of internship that you can have at a sports talk radio program. That beats any type of experience that you have doing student talk radio or doing working at the student radio station. All of that stuff supersedes all of the experience, all of the internships, all of the fact that you can do the board up, that you can do all those type of things, you know, building your foundation like I had to do starting off at a later age because I decided to get into the radio business when I was 26, 27. So for years, I was the one who was doing the board ops. I was the run. I was the one doing the commercials. I was the one doing all the grunt work. I was the one that was working for five bucks an hour. I was the one that had worked every day for seven, eight hours a day, each day, seven days a week. Do you know that someone who has a championship ring, who played for Alabama, who played for Nick Saban, that guy doesn't have to do any of that shit. <laughs> that guy has to just come in and say, hey, you know what? Uh, for your radio show, I would love to be a guest. And then you can talk to the program director and talk about possibly down the road having their own radio show where you have a guy who does have the experience of broadcasting to go in there and basically guide you through it. But you're going to be the show. It's the Mac Jones show. It's the Najee Harris show. It's the Jerry Judy show. Also with the guy who went to uh, 
college and spent the last five years honing his craft to be a broadcaster. He's going to be the one that's going to be bringing you in. He's going to be the one that's going to be setting the topics. He's going to be the one that's going to be leading you to break. He's going to be the one that's going to make sure that you uh, hit the top of the hour mark correctly. He's going to be the one that's going to be doing all that. Not the guy who uh, has the ring from Alabama. Not the guy who won the championship with Clemson. Not the guy who won a championship with Ohio State when he's going to be doing sports talk in Cincinnati or Cleveland or any of them places. Now, Cleveland, you'll probably have a Cleveland Brown. But still, he could find a way. Excuse me. He could find a way if that's possible. So what does winning a championship mean for those guys? That That's what it means. That's what it means. And in, in, the, in the small picture, in the, you know, in the, micro it's like yeah we're number one hip hip hooray yeah all of our goals and dreams and the hard work and everything it was it was it's been you know fulfilled hip hip hooray in in life sure that's a good foundation in terms of you know setting goals reaching goals knowing how how hard you have to work to get to those goals the sacrifice that you have to do because if you're going to work that hard to win a championship then you'll work that hard to make sure your marriage lasts you'll be working that hard to make sure that your kids are going to grow up to be good people you're going to be working that hard to sustain your business and have your business become successful so yeah those lessons that Saban and Sweeney and Ryan Day and Meyer and those guys are are you know building for you for that foundation yeah it should help moving forward but if you're looking at the big picture and if you're looking at the real picture, the main thing about winning that championship is it gives you that opportunity to get ahead of the line in terms of opportunities to start building your future financially. And uh, that's, uh, that's, that's really, really huge. So again, what does it mean? College football? Hey, it was a successful season. And for those who participated, congratulations. But always remember, man, winning that championship and getting that ring, oh man, as far as accolades and big man on campus and now you can go ahead and have sex with any female that you want to for the next 24 to 48 hours, you might get a free meal every here, every now and then because of it. Remember the big picture, the lifelong picture in terms of winning that championships. Doors have been opened. Opportunities have now been afforded to you that others don't have the privilege of getting. Don't waste it. Take advantage of it. So glad that you could be with us. Namaste, Shalom, Wassalam alaikum, Konishima. What's happening? Lakers and the Rockets, man. I'm getting myself ready to watch some good basketball before my eyes start to bleed in about four hours as I watch Georgetown go for six losses in a row against DePaul. We don't beat DePaul. I don't know. 
where we're going to be getting the victory. <laughs> three and eight, headed to three and nine. That's okay. That's okay. Coach, just please play the young guys and see what we can get better. This is a waste. My next podcast, I will be talking more about Georgetown. But yeah, watching the Lakers and the Rockets, you know, when you watch Georgetown and you have to watch that team play, you're just you're just begging after you're done to like watch some NBA basketball, some high level basketball to to cleanse your soul. To just it's like you know to get the stench off you. It's like you know watching an NBA basketball game after watching Georgetown playing. It's like a guy who's been rolling in the mud, in the filth, and the shit, and other excrements from other animals. And you need to just take a deep, deep cleansing bath. To wash yourself a shower, just to wash all of that gook and that nastiness all out of you. So after watching two luminary programs like DePaul and Georgetown set basketball back 15 years tonight, I don't know what games are on tonight. I don't know if the Clippers are going to be playing tonight. I don't know who's going to be playing tonight, but there'll be some NBA games for me to be watching to uh, rid myself of the stench, which will be Georgetown, DePaul tonight. But I love my Hoyas. Absolutely, positively love my Georgetown Hoyas. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Wild Card Weekend, NFL Wild Card Weekend, the most surprising game of the weekend, of course. Cleveland over Pittsburgh, 48 to 37. Cleveland led 28 to nothing after the first quarter, 35 to 7 at halftime. The Browns got their first playoff victory win since the 1994 season and their first road win in the postseason. Before the AFL-NFL merger. Jeez, man. What in the world of Blanton Collier and Leroy Kelly is going on with that one? So not surprising. I said it before. It wouldn't be surprising if Cleveland beat Pittsburgh. It was just surprising on how the game unfolded. That was the thing where it was kind of like, what? They took advantage of three first-half interceptions from Roethlisberger, Ben Roethlisberger. Two led directly to touchdowns. Now, Cleveland was outscored 27-13 in the second half by Pittsburgh, but basically they went into a pre-vet defense. You score 35 points at halftime. You're up by 28 points at halftime against a team that's fading and is on his last legs. Of course, you're going to go ahead and not give the... I mean, it's just, it's just you know, you're not going to be getting three other turnovers in the second half, and you're not going to be scoring another 35 points. You're not going to be putting 70 points up, up on the Steelers. So... Situation where the lead for Cleveland was big enough where they started bleeding the clock. You really could say that they started bleeding the clock after the first quarter when they got up 28-0. They let Roethlisberger get back into a rhythm, but uh, somewhat of a rhythm because he threw a couple of more interceptions after a couple of quick scores. But yeah, man, say goodbye to the, uh, I sound like Darian. Yeah, man, but say goodbye to the Cleveland Browns or say goodbye to the Pittsburgh Steelers and say goodbye to the Cleveland Browns, your Cleveland Browns. Your sister's Cleveland Browns, your cousin's Cleveland Browns, your 2002 to 2020 Cleveland Browns. These ain't the same old Browns. These are the new Browns. They won a game where they had to deal with adversity during the week of the game. Their head coach, Kevin Stefanski, wasn't even in the building. Their all-pro guard wasn't there. He tested positive for COVID-19. Denzel Denzel Washington. Not only did Denzel Washington not play, Denzel Ward didn't play either. The Browns were unable to practice most of the week because of the uh, COVID-related issues. The offensive line also didn't have uh, Jack Conklin, fellow all-pro who was lost in the first half because of injury. The team still didn't allow a sack. The team still held 
Cameron Hayward, and TJ Watt to just four total pressures in their lowest marks of the season. Mayfield was only pressured 19% of his dropbacks, lowest rate of any quarterback for the weekend. Pittsburgh's streak of 73 consecutive games with a sack came to the end, came to an end. And Cleveland, it's all about that offensive line. It is all about the offensive line. We can talk about the running game. Nick Chubb and, and, and Kareem Hunt, they ain't getting started without that offensive line. And the way that this team was built for Cleveland from the offensive line starting out on offense is paid dividends. Mayfield posted a 115.2 passer rating, didn't commit a turnover. He was 21-34 for 263 yards, three touchdowns, threw it to seven different receivers. Running back Kareem Hunt Nick Chubb, had 206 total yards. Chubb rushed for 76 yards. Hunt had two touchdowns and 48 yards. They ran strong. They got to the secondary, punished the uh, Steelers' defenders. It was a balanced offense. Chubb had 145 total yards. He caught a screen pass from Mayfield and scored a touchdown that way. Balanced offense. They threw the ball Cleveland 34 times, ran it 31 times. Balanced offense, man. Defense forced five Steeler turnovers. It was, yeah, you can sit there in the second half talk about, yeah, this, that, and the other, and the defensive secondary got a little bit tired, and Pittsburgh got in the rhythm, and what would have happened if Pittsburgh didn't have all those turnovers? Well, they did have all those turnovers. You're going to put the blame on Cleveland, or are you somehow going to mitigate or minimize the importance of this victory over Pittsburgh because of that, because of Steelers' miscues? We've got to remember, this was a team in Pittsburgh that was fading fast. And Cleveland did what they had to do. Oh, okay, you're going to go ahead and you're going to give us a touchdown to start the game, 14 seconds in? Cool, we'll go ahead and take that. Oh, what, we're going to go ahead? The, the interception by Roethlisberger, a couple of them, yeah, they were bad reads, but another one, the ball was tipped at the uh, line of scrimmage by the defender, caught by another uh, lineman for Cleveland. I mean, they made plays. They made plays, and even in the second half when Pittsburgh cut the lead to 11 a couple of times, and you said, uh-oh, same old Browns. No, 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 no. These ain't the same old Browns. These are the new Browns. These are the well-coached Browns. These are the Browns who have a, who have a competent quarterback, a guy who can be the quarterback of a team that wins football games in the playoffs. They have an offensive line that's going to establish the line of scrimmage and be able to control the line of scrimmage, even against one of the best defenses in the NFL. This was a team that had the depth. This was a team that not only had the depth in the offensive line and other parts of the team, but also in the coaching staff. Pointed out, Kevin Stefanski wasn't there. And he didn't have access to his coaches or his players during that time, during the, when the game was playing. So he had to put in a game plan. He had to get everybody rip-roaring, ready to go, not just for what the players need to do, to do but also for the coaches. The special teams coach, he was, he's never been a head coach before. So Stefanski, not only did he have to coach up the players, he had to coach up the guy that's go, that was going to be replacing him and kind of give him a game plan and kind of let him go through what was going to be happening. I mean, that's coaching. When, in the, when was the last time that Cleveland had that type of organization? That Cleveland had that type of structure from the, uh, from the coaches? Not when Hugh Jackson was there. Not, 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 the, not the jackass that was there uh, last season. So, yeah, this is a uh, Freddie Kitchens. With the, yeah, Freddie Kitchens, yeah. So it was a, uh, it's a whole new Cleveland Browns team. Now they're going to go in and play the defending champion Kansas City uh, football team. Now, 
you know, this is a situation where, again, the key for this game is going to be controlling the line of scrimmage. One of the things that Kansas City is weak in is stopping the run. They're not horrible. They're not Houston. But, but in a situation where Cleveland is ranked third in the NFL in rushing, and fourth in rushing attempts, and then Kansas City is 21st in the league in yards against the run, they're giving up 122 yards per game, it's going to be essential for the, for the Cleveland Browns to go in there and do what they need to do to control the clock, to limit the offensive possessions for, for Kansas City, and, and not let them get on a roll. Because you, you have to remember that Kansas City has really played the majority of the starters. They haven't played in two weeks. So there's going to be some time where they're going to, have to need to shake off some rust. Now, how much time we're talking about here for Kansas City? We'll find out. We don't know if it's going to be one possession. We don't know if it's going to be one quarter. We don't know. But during that time, Cleveland is going to have to go ahead. And it's going to be hugely important, not just for the game flow, but also for their own confidence and for their own continuing momentum that Cleveland goes out and they score first. And I'm not talking about field goals. I'm talking about touchdowns. And the way they're going to do that is, again, to go ahead and sustain these long drives. Cleveland is not going to... Baker Mayfield is not going to outgun Patrick Mahomes. This is going to be a situation where it's about the offensive line. It's about the running game. Mayfield, short passes, the, 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 the time that he threw the ball in terms of uh, releasing it against the Steelers' rush, short passes to the tight ends, getting Jarvis Landry into uh, good positions to make catches and to make plays. It's going to have to be done again against a defense in Kansas City that's not as dominant as Pittsburgh, even a fading Pittsburgh Steelers defense like it was over the past four games. So Cleveland is going to have to establish that line of scrimmage and the stars of the game are going to have to be Kareem Hunt and also Nick Chubb. We're going to have to go, going to have to go old school on, on this one. And for the defending champions, the Kansas City football team, basically you're taking a look at a defense in Cleveland and a defense in Kansas City that are, I wouldn't say mere images, of course, because... Cleveland has Miles Garrett and Kansas City doesn't. But if you take a look at the yards that were given up by each team this season, they've only been the difference is only two yards. Kansas City gave up 5,733 yards in the season. Cleveland gave up 5,735 yards a total offense this season. So can the Cleveland defense, especially if we're speaking about the secondary, I'm thinking that Ward is going to come back this weekend can they do anything against Patrick Mahomes that defense last week ran down was starting to run out of gas against Pittsburgh who had to put the pedal to the metal in terms of the tempo because of the quandary that they put themselves in with the turnovers being down so early if the defense is going to be able to keep up that pace against the Kansas City football team pace this which is uh which is pretty uh pretty balls to the wall and can they put any pressure on Mahomes, not just with Garrett, to make the, to have the secondary get have a better chance of uh, doing what they need to do? And for Kansas City, how are you going to look after its most important players have had two weeks off? I mentioned it before. Kansas City, I think, is the best team in the uh, NFL. 
despite everything that went down, despite some of the hiccups and despite some of the sub... I guess you could say for them, the subpar play that they had, but you still have the best quarterback in the league outside of Aaron Rodgers for a season. And if you're speaking about just who would you pick or who's going to be your guy, Patrick Mahomes is still Patrick Mahomes. Andy Reid, now Eric Bieniemy, those guys now have the pedigree of winning a championship. So they've they've known the journey. They've been through the journey. Cleveland, they can sit there and talk about all they want. No, we're not done. We're not done. You've never been in this situation before. And winning that championship is all about growth. It's no different than the NBA. You don't expect a team that's never won a championship, that a, a core of players that have, that haven't been to a that haven't been to the playoffs to all of a sudden win a championship. That holds true for basketball and for the NFL. So everything here for Cleveland is a learning experience. And when you take a look at those core players, a Mayfield, a Landry, a Conklin, a Garrett, a Ward, those guys hadn't had any type of playoff experience before. And now you're going against a team on the road in Kansas City who not only won a championship, has turned around and had a very successful season and has had the the wars in terms of football is concerned. I hate using that term war when you're dealing with sports because nothing in sports is a quote-unquote war. But the, the the battles, the games that they play, the adverse situations that they've been in, going up against the Belichicks of the world, going up against the Bradys of the world, going up and facing adversity, the uh, playoffs last season where they had to come back from 17 points down in each of their playoff games last season to win a to win a championship. Those, those things are important. And those things can help mitigate some of the rust that Kansas City is looking to shake shake off in the first opening minutes or quarters or whatever of this game. So Kansas City, the expectations are much higher. Are much higher. And the, and the players have that mentality. But they also have the knowledge of how to deal with those expectations. Of how to deal with with those responsibilities. Cleveland? I'm not saying that they're like, we're happy to be here. Let's just go out and just give it a good old try and pick up our participation trophy and orange wedges at the end of the day. They're coming to play. They're coming to win this game. The problem is they don't have that experience. The problem is Kansas City's the better team. But also the problem is you, you pile on to that, the fact that they don't have the experience that Kansas City does. The run has been great. And you can parlay this, Cleveland, into moving forward next year in terms of reaching even greater goals. Now, now, now the bar has been risen. And for the offseason, moving into the season, the expectations, yeah, when Freddie Kitchens with the coach last year and you got OBJ and, you know, you, you, this, that, and the other, and you, you got all these guys and Mayfield was coming off the, the uh, excellent – rookie year that he had and Nick Chubb and all these guys and the expectations were woohoo Cleveland talent 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 new Cleveland new Cleveland new this and that didn't live up to the expectations you weren't experienced enough you know they didn't didn't have didn't have the scars didn't have the adversity the adversity that you had was, was self-inflicted but I'm, I'm speaking in terms of going through these battles going through these things you didn't you didn't have the experience now you went ahead and you faced a situation where it was win or don't even make the playoffs and how huge of a situation that would have been if that didn't happen. We're speaking about maybe players losing their jobs, losing their employment with that franchise if Cleveland loses that game, the last regular season game of the season against Pittsburgh. 
So you guys went and you faced that adversity, and then you got through it. Then, playoff game, first time in a long time, playing the Steelers team that has been your nemesis for a long time, going to their place, facing the adversity of not having your head coach and, and an all-star guard and the COVID situation swirling around it, and you perform like that, and you beat those guys, and you take advantage of the of the uh, turnovers that were given to you. That's that that's that's good building blocks. That's good foundation for a team hoping in a year or two or three to win a championship, to compete seriously for a championship. Adding on, knowing what you need to do, knowing where you need to go, knowing what it's like to be in that situation, having the knowledge to now put pieces in place where you can overcome those obstacles that you move forward in your progression to be a team that's going to be vying for a championship year in and year out. Good for you. Good for you. Cleveland Brown fans, take this game against Kansas City as a learning experience. And if you win, and oh, by the way, I'm not saying this is going to be a, a dominant performance. I'm giving Cleveland a chance to win this game. Absolutely. Would it shock me? Yes, but would it be like, oh my goodness, this is Jets versus Colts in Super Bowl three type of unbelievable stuff. This is this is unbelievable. No, no, it wouldn't at all. Cleveland has the found that they have the talent, they have the structure, and we don't know on any given Sunday who's going to be showing up as far as the players for Kansas City and the effect that having two weeks off will have on them. So no, it wouldn't shock the hell out of me if Cleveland won this game. I'm not thinking they would. But regardless of what happens for Cleveland Browns fans, organizations and such, take this more as a learning experience because playing in these situations will help you immensely down the road when you guys hopefully are going to be competing for championships year after year. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. Just a, I just found this out as I was taking a little break from, not a break, but, you know, just a quick, you know, get up and stretch from the uh, podcast, from reporting the podcast. The Houston Rockets have traded James Harden to the Brooklyn Nets. Just found this out, so in terms of who was traded for what and this, that, and the other, I still don't know as far as from uh, Brooklyn's standpoint is concerned. I'm quite sure it was a bevy of picks. I'm quite sure either Dinwiddie or Karis LeVert was included in the trade, but um, it's official. Adrian Wojnarowski has reported that uh, James Harden has been traded from the Houston Rockets to the Brooklyn Nets. Probably give you a little bit more information about it in terms of who was traded for what at the end of this podcast. And also, fuck shit, damn, god damn it, the fucking Georgetown versus the Paul game has been postponed because of COVID-related issues. 
So no game tonight for me to watch between Georgetown and DePaul and their games against Providence and Marquette. The upcoming two games after the DePaul game is also in jeopardy because of COVID-related issues. So anyway, I hope those guys are, hope those guys are uh, doing well and all that good stuff. But damn, man. Fucking hate the shot. Hate the opportunity to miss the Georgetown Hoyas, miss my Georgetown Hoyas play, even though they were going to lose all three games and they were going to look bad doing it and all of those type of things. Well, you motherfuckers are going to bring blame Ewing on this too? See, I told you that motherfucker can't coach. God damn, now we can't keep this team safe from COVID. What the fuck, man? This guy can't. He's fucking terrible, man. He needs to trade his ass. You see what Dan Hurley's doing for Connecticut? God damn shit, fuck, man. Can't believe Ewing can't coach. He fucking sucks, so. Save your bullshit on that one, huh? But, uh, yeah, no Georgetown game tonight, so. Life goes on. I'll live. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Back to football. Speaking about uh, what happened what happened this past weekend in the wild card games, mainly between Cleveland and Pittsburgh. Talked about the win and moving forward for Cle- Cleveland. Now, let's talk about Pittsburgh. Because what in the fuck was that? That what was that? Well, it was Pittsburgh going down the drain, man. Steelers lost four of the last five games. Coming into the playoffs, they needed an uh, improbable second half comeback in Week 16 against the Indianapolis Colts to win that game, or else they would have been coming in on a, on a you know five game losing streak. It's the fourth time in NFL history that a team started the season 11-0 and and then went on to lose in the first round of the playoffs. And I guess you could say if you're a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, this has to be one of the worst, if not the worst, defeat in the Mike Tomlin coaching era for the Pittsburgh Steelers, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be worse than losing to Blake Bortles and the Jacksonville Jaguars in the 2017 playoffs where the Steelers were 13-3 and with the number one seed coming into the AFC. They lost at home 45-42 to to a guy named Blake Bortles. But this... this, this Wow, jeez, man. I don't know, man. Was this even worse than the time that they lost to Tim Tebow in the Denver Broncos in the AFC, in the AFC wildcard game 29-23 in overtime? That was the year after they lost to the Green Bay Packers in the Super Bowl. Then they came back the next season. They finished 12-4. and They lost the uh, NFC North to the Baltimore Ravens, but they went out and played Denver and Tebow, and they were down 20-6 to after halftime, and the Steelers' defense allowed passing yardage of, of 51, 30, 58, and 40 yards to a guy named Tim fucking Tebow who couldn't pass on four of those drives, 51, 58, 30, and 40. And then on the first play of overtime, Tebow to Demarius Thomas for an 80-yard touchdown pass that eliminated the Steelers. You know the impact of that loss? The Steelers finished 8-8 eight and eight the next two seasons and failed to make the playoffs. That's how big of a loss that was for the Steelers and losing to a guy who shouldn't even been in the league to begin with in Tebow and then um, losing the way they did. Took them two years to recover from that. A total change in the way they play football. Coaches were fired. Players were let go. So it was a it was a change from top to bottom after they lost to what Denver. What does the impact of losing to Cleveland mean moving forward? Because everyone associated with the Pittsburgh Steelers that played on that field on Sunday should be embarrassed and deserves plenty of blame. The defense was bad on Sunday. I mean, how many missed tackles are you guys going to have in the first quarter? I mean, the lack of urgency, the lack of, I don't know what it was. I mean, did you guys think that you guys were going to be playing about 40 minutes later than you actually started? 
because you guys came out flat. You guys came out with no emotion. You guys came out with very little energy. You guys just came out like it was just a week three of a of the NFL preseason. And meanwhile, I mean, here's Kareem Hunt running, barreling over you guys and having his offensive lineman push him from the five-yard line into the end zone for one of the scores. The missed tackling was atrocious. You guys didn't record a sack. It was it was uh, it was embarrassing, and yeah, I mean the first play of the game was the touchdown and the interceptions and the turnovers set Cleveland up in you know really good scoring situations, but still to give up that many points on defense when you guys were considered the one of the best defenses in the league, it was uh, unacceptable, inexcusable. And really, the lack of defensive dominance by the Steelers was just to continue a trend through the last four games of the season, the last quarter of the season. The defense in the final four games of the regular season, they allowed 144 yards rushing per game. That's that's 33 yards higher than what they were doing uh, from the slide that they had. Pittsburgh's number three defense, the way they finished it in the regular season, they ranked 11th against the run. That was the first time all season that they dropped out of the top 10 because of their collapse in terms of stopping the run the last quarter of the season. So, yeah, on offense, you still the ball. Ben Roethlisberger, who's, what, 38 years old, coming off of elbow surgery, which caused him to miss the entire season for the most part, threw 68 passes. You ran it only 16 times. Yeah, I know that uh, you guys don't have Franco Harris and Rocky Blyer back there. But geez, man, it's only 16 times. And I understand that you went down 28 to nothing. But damn, 16 times? And you have a quarterback, Ben Roethlisberger, who can't move, who can't throw it down the field with any consistency. You're having him throw the ball 68 times? Yeah, he had four touchdown passes. But again, 68 times? Yeah, he had 47 completions. But again, 68 times? I don't give a damn who you are. Tom Brady in his prime. Joe Montana in his prime. Fran Tarkington in his prime. John Elway in his prime. Patrick Mahomes in his prime. You like the way I say prime? I don't care who you have. There ain't going to be no way. I don't care what kind of defense that you have. The Steel Curtain, the Purple People Eater, the 2001 Ravens defense, the 1985 uh, uh, Chicago Bears. I don't give a damn who you have as a defense. You ain't going to win a football team if you're having to throw the ball 68 times. <laughs> Just ridiculous. So... I mean, Roethlisberger, Roethlisberger was horrific. But then again, when you have to ask a guy to throw the ball 68 times, four interceptions, I mean, that's going to happen. Until Sunday night, Big Ben had never lost to the Browns at Heinz Field. He was 13-0. And he was 24-2-1 against the AFC North uh, before that. Times are a-changing. Like Bob Dylan saying, man, times are a-changing. Not just in this country in civil rights, but also with the changing of the guard with the Cleveland Browns. So, you're a Steeler fan, man. What are you going to be doing moving forward next season? Once you get over this shock, once you get over this depression, once you get over this denial, what are you guys going to do? No, you're not firing Mike Tomlin. That ain't happening. Mike Tomlin ain't going nowhere. So, forget all that. There are going to be some changes on the offensive with the coordinators. Uh, there really wasn't too much imagination from all those who followed the game of football at that level. The complaint with the defense was the fact that they really didn't do anything exotic. They really didn't do anything spectacular. It's just a matter of, well, you know what? My guys are better than your guys, so why do we, why do we really need to do anything clever 
or why do we need to do anything expansive or why do we need to do anything unique or anything like that? I got Cameron Hayward, I got uh, TJ Watt, and I got Bud Dupree, and I got those guys. What do I need to do anything special for? Oh, just in case we start faltering a little bit, I don't really have a plan B, and the Steelers on defense didn't have plan B. So it was it was exploited, especially, again, when you turn the ball over and give Cleveland the field position that they did. Offense, I mean, some we got to do something if you're a Steeler fan. Number one, we got to do something about a running game. You can't have Ben Roethlisberger throw the ball 60-something times. You can't have Ben Roethlisberger be the way that he was in terms of the pass attempts. Can't be happening. Ben Roethlisberger is going to be 39 years old next season. He threw the ball over 600 times this season. It's not going to be happening. You got to do something about your running game, whether that means drafting somebody, whether that means obtaining somebody. You got to do something. Because James Conner, while he's not good, he's not coming back. He's a free agent, so he's not going to be coming back. And he wasn't the answer to your problems, or else he would have been the answer to your problems. Because he was the guy that was starting at the running back position. You already let one of your running backs go. I think he was third string. So what are you going to do about the running game? And, of course, more importantly, the most important thing moving forward, if you're a fan of the Pittsburgh Steelers and you're watching and you're listening to this podcast called Wendell's World of Sports with your host Wendell Wallace. The most important thing is what are you going to do with Ben Roethlisberger? Because according to a report from Adam Schefter of ESPN in December, Roethlisberger was talking about telling teammates that he wanted to continue playing next season. That was in December before everything hit the fan, but financially, what are you going to do with Roethlisberger if he does want to come back? Because if he does... It's going to be a $41.25 million uh, uh, hit on your salary cap. Ouch. And if Roethlisberger is released before a March roster bonus or retires before then, the organization is still going to be on the books for $22.3 million in dead cap space after restructuring his deal this last offseason. So him retiring is not going to solve all your problems either. Now, they could outright release them, and that could save Pittsburgh about $19 million, but you're really going to do that? You're really going to be that cold to the greatest quarterback in Steelers history? Hey, man, a business is a business. I mean, time to move on, this, that, and the other. But isn't Pittsburgh supposed to be a little bit different organization? If you take a look at the coaches that have been employed by the Steelers, the type of uh, longevity that they have, don't the Steelers do things a lot differently than other than other franchises, and the fact that the many times that they've been in the playoffs, the number of Super Bowls that they've won, why are you, why are you going to deviate from that now? So I'm taking a look at the Steeler organization. Isn't loyalty one of the things? And all of a sudden now, by letting Ben Roethlisberger go, you're, you're going to be breaking away from that. New times call for new measures, calls for new types of thinking. So, I mean, maybe possibly, but wow, would you actually be able to do that? And if you let Roethlisberger go, yeah, it could save you some cap space and some cap room and all those type of things, but who's going to be your quarterback? Mason Rudolph? Didn't we see him the majority of last season? And if it wasn't on him, it was Doug Devlin, Devlin Dodgers or Doug Dodgers in the 21st century, whoever that guy was. I don't even think he's on the team anymore. So going into the season next year, if... You guys are so cold and so bolden to say, hey, Ben, are you going to retire or are we going to release you? Because we ain't bringing you back. 41.25 hit on our salary cap, and we're 20-something million over the cap. I mean, bruh. Thanks, but, I mean, what, what are we going to do here? 
So if you're really going to be in that position, Mason Rudolph is going to be your guy? All right. I mean, they, they have a first-round pick at number 24. Are you going to draft a Mac Jones who might not be there? Kyle Trask of Florida, maybe he might be there. Are you going to reach? Are you going to try to move up? I mentioned before, you're, you're 22 million. You're going to be projected 22 million over the proposed 100, $175 million salary cap for next season. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with Roethlisberger? Especially if he says, I want to come back. Not like you can. I, I don't even know another team that would even pick him up. Let's say, for instance, you know, a situation where it's like, look, I know that you want to come back and play. You look pretty good. He's not done. He's, he's, you know, he's, he's got some some thread left on those tires. Maybe another season or such. As much as he, if, for instance, if he was playing for a team like the Cleveland Browns, where they relied on the running game so much and he wouldn't have to be throwing the ball 35, 40 times a game, Roethlisberger could still be a very effective quarterback. But when you put the whole offense around this guy and ask him to do what he did for the Steelers this year, no, I, that's, uh, moving forward, that situation isn't going to get better. You're not going to say, yeah, we're going to do the same thing that we did this season, but Roethlisberger will be better. Why? Based on what? He's going to be older. He's going to be older. Oh, yeah, and he's going to be older. Uh, that, so that's not going to be happening. The days of putting the offense on Ben Roethlisberger is over with. So if you do, if he does want to go somewhere, if the Steelers say, you know, thanks but no thanks, we got to move on, or either you retire, what other team is going to be there? Well, the Chicago Bears? No. The Miami Dolphins? No. Who else is out there? And who's even out, who else is out there that's even going to want Roethlisberger? If you're going to want Roethlisberger, it's almost got to be a situation where you're a quarterback away from making a real, you know, making a real uh, advancement in the playoffs. Kind of like what Indianapolis did with Phillip Rivers uh, this past offseason. So, so what's going to happen with that? Roethlisberger has no other team that can really pick him up for real. So moving forward, it's just, it's just a quandary of issues that the Steelers, Roethlisberger, and another is going to have to deal with. His wife, his kids, his lord, everything. He's going to have to do a lot of uh, soul-searching and deciding. The Steelers are like, yeah, if you could do it before March, we'd really appreciate it. Wendell's World in Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So moving forward, you got the Steelers, $22 million over the salary cap. Salary cap is going to be around $175 mil. What can they do? Well, they could, you know, what can they do to bring that number down? They could they could uh, say goodbye to Mar- Marquise Pouncey, the center, who's been, you know, him and Roethlisberger has been two peeds in the pod there. Been there for nine years. Pouncey has one year remaining on his current deal. His cap hit for next season is $14.5 million, so the Steelers can recoup $8 million if they release him. Cornerback Joe Hayden, formerly of Florida, formerly of the Browns, he turns 32 in three months. He carries a $15.6 million salary cap hit for next season. If they release him... The Steelers can save 12 and a half mil. If the Steelers release 31-year-old inside linebacker Vince Williams, it could save Pittsburgh another 4 million. So, okay, we're bringing it down. We're bringing it down. And then you don't have to worry about some of the players that you're going to be resigning from your old team because you take a look at someone like a Juju Smith-Schuster. He's going to be out of your price zone because now he's a free agent. I'm quite sure that there's going to be teams that are going to be offering him 
money that steel that the Steelers can't afford to match. Uh, lost uh, left tackle Alejandro Villanueva. For all intents and purposes, he's going to be gone. He's been a long stalwart of the offensive line for Pittsburgh. Bud Dupree mentioned before the defensive end. Someone's going to offer him too much money for the Steelers to match. So, what are we looking at here? I talked about the Roethlisberger situation. Talked about the ability to, to, to try to draft a running back. But then again, if you're going to be replacing two or three guys on your offensive line, do you have those guys already on the team that are signed, sealed, delivered, and yours to be able to fill in and be uh, starters for the next couple of seasons? Are you going to be spending, what type of draft capital are you going to be spending to rebuild your offensive line when, yeah, you have some players in terms of the defense that are going to be stalwarts. You got uh, Cameron Hayward, you got TJ Watt, you got Mika Fitzpatrick, you got those guys. So you got the still, you got the foundation of a good defense. But in the NFL, you don't win with pretty good defenses and pretty good offenses. You got to win with one, mainly the offense, most likely the offense being very good, being excellent. And that starts with the quarterback. So unless you're going to have a defense that transcends the game, which I don't think even with the foundation that the Steelers have moving forward, you're going to have to somehow do something with the offensive side of the football. And that starts with replenishing the offensive line, getting yourself a quarterback through draft trade. I don't know. I mean, are the Saints willing to let go of Jameis Winston? Are you going to be able to do anything to maybe get a Matthew Stafford to get yourself a Matt Ryan? Is that good enough to rely on that defense? Is Matt Stafford and Matt Ryan good enough? to uh, get the offense to where they are if on a rebuild offensive line and below average running backs, you'll still be fine at the wide receiver position. That's going to be fine. Chase Claypool uh, played well. James Washington is going to be looking to emerge. Dante, you, you got some guys from the wide receiver position where the loss of Juju Smith-Schuster is not going to be devastating. But again, Smith-Schuster not being there, it does weaken your wide receiver core. And if you don't improve your running back position, that means overall on your offense is going to be weaker than it was last season. And you're going to be asking Mason Rudolph to do the same thing that Ben Roethlisberger did or tried to do last season. And you saw the results, what happened late in the season. And Mason Rudolph, even with Roethlisberger being 38, is nowhere near the quarterback that uh, uh, Big Ben is. So got some questions to ask if you're Pittsburgh. Travis ATN, how does he? How would he look in black and gold? Najee Harris, interesting. Kenny Gainswell on the Memphis. He's another guy that's supposed to be projected anywhere between late third, late uh, first, early third. Javante Williams of the North Carolina. You got to pick somebody. You got to pick somebody if you're the Steelers sometime in the draft. I don't even know what running backs are even going to be available for this team of free agency. So you're going to have to concentrate on the draft to uh, build that squad. But a lot of questions going forward. I, I My my guess is going to be that Roethlisberger is going to come back for one more season. I don't know if he can restructure the deal. I don't know what the situation is regarding that. But if the Steelers aren't going to be moving toward uh, getting a lot better, then what would be the point of letting Roethlisberger go anyway? You owe it to him. And we talked about the Steelers and their loyalty. So I think Roethlisberger is going to come back. I think they're going to figure out a way. I think the Steelers are going to fall the third in the NFC North behind 
Cleveland and Baltimore. And I think they're going to use this as a tradition uh, tra- uh, transition year. I think the Steelers are going to draft themselves a quarterback and a running back in the upcoming draft. And then we'll start the rebuilding process, right? Uh, starting with the uh, 2022 season with 2021 being a transitional year. So that's my outlook for the Steelers, man. Tough loss. Tough loss against the Cleveland Browns on Sunday. But uh, a lot more roads of concern and obstacles and decisions are going to be made for the Steelers moving forward. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going on, a lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports, speaking about the NFL, the Baltimore Ravens over the Tennessee Titans 20-13, the Ravens snapped a string of 21 straight games lost by the franchise in either the regular season or the playoffs when trailing by 10 or more points, way to go, Lamar Jackson. Got his first playoff win of his career. Congrats. Game ball, baby. Game ball for LJ. He ran for 136 yards, including a 48-yard touchdown scramble that was like, damn. And he threw for 179 yards. Baltimore plays the Buffalo Bills in the next round. They beat the Indianapolis Colts 24-21. Hey, man, I hear hear all this stuff. And look, I'm one of those guys who... We're speaking about down the road, Lamar needs to do this and Lamar needs to do that because if Lamar wants to stay around for 14, 15, 16, 18 years, the way the quarterbacks are going right now, playing into their 30s or mid-30s and their late 30s, even into their 40s if they want to. Russell Wilson wants to play until he's 45 years old. If Lamar wants to have that type of career sooner or later, now he just turned 23 years old, but in the next couple of seasons, he's going to have to go ahead and learn how to be more of a a pocket presence type of quarterback. I've been saying that all along. But I will say this. If I'm John Harbaugh, of the the head coach of the uh, Baltimore Ravens, and I'm Greg Roman, the offensive coordinator for this team, hey, man, I'm letting Lamar Jackson do his thing. If he wants to play like he did in college, then go ahead. If he wants to go ahead and we design scramble runs for this guy, doing that 10, 12 times a game, that's exactly what I'm going to do. As of right now, as Lamar... As Lamar continues his path in becoming a more traditional type of quarterback, I'm letting Lamar do Lamar. I'm letting him do his thing. He's never going to be Tom Brady. He's never going to be Drew Brees. He's never going to be Warren Moon. He's never going to be Doug Williams. He's never going to be that type of pocket present type of quarterback. He's never going to do that. Now, he'll improve on reading defenses. He'll do all those things because he's an intelligent young man. He's a hardworking young man. He's a dedicated young man by all reports. 
from Baltimore who described his work ethic as strong and he wants to learn and he's a sponge and he studies and he does all the things that you need to do from your franchise quarterback if you want to continue the journey of maximizing your potential that the cerebral with Lamar Jackson in terms of him wanting to be a better cerebral type of quarterback reading defenses, i.e. Tom Brady, Drew Brees and such, is is there. So he's not talking about, yeah, I'm going to be this athletic and this fast and this speedy when I'm 35 years old. What's What, what are y'all talking about? I can keep playing this way for the next 15, 16 years. So as Lamar continues his journey to be more of a pocket type of quarterback as he gets older and his athletic skills start to decrease, hey man, for the time being... I'm going to be doing with him what I'm going to be the non-traditional guy with him. I need a non-traditional offensive coordinator. I'm, I'm, I want to put Lamar in those same type of situations that he had in college to use his athletic ability. He's going to have this for the next three or four years. So why not? I mean, barring some type of injury, horrific injury, he's going to be this athletic. He's going to be uber athletic for the next four or five years, three or four years. Why not go ahead and maximize that? Why are you going to take away his biggest strength. His biggest strength is breaking the pocket and making things happen with his feet. And once again, he's also a guy who can pass the ball and win football games that way. But as of right now, here's a guy who, if you limit his passes to around 25, 20 a game and allow him to run, that's the best way for Baltimore to run their offense right now. Especially when they don't have the type of receiving core that someone like a Tom Brady has or someone like a Drew Brees has or someone like an Aaron Rodgers has, that type of deal. So why not let Lamar be Lamar? Good victory for the um, Baltimore Ravens against the Titans. And the defense played well. Held Derrick Henry in check. So uh, the Ravens are one of those teams, I said, going into the playoffs, if anybody's going to compete But the Kansas City football team is going to be the um, Baltimore Ravens along with the Buffalo Bills. So we'll see which one of those teams is going to have the opportunity to go ahead and do that as they play on, they play, what is that game going to be? That game, Baltimore and Buffalo, I think that's Sunday, right? No, Buffalo, Baltimore, that's going to be the um, 8-15 game, Eastern Standard Time on Saturday. Buffalo doing what they do. Pretty, uh, Pretty, pretty tense game, close game against Indianapolis. Indianapolis had their chances. Of course, the, the turning point of the game for Indianapolis was not only the opportunity to uh, score a touchdown going forward on fourth down, Phillip Rivers passed on the left, uh, left side of the end zone to Michael Pittman just a little bit out of reach. But I can understand the thinking of Frank Wright. Look, you got a Bills team that was putting up a boatload of points. So field goals aren't going to get it done. So it's near the end of the half. We have a very good defense. Even if we don't score a touchdown on this play, Buffalo will be backed up in their own end zone. So what are the chances of them going down the field and scoring? Ah, oh, shit, they went down the field and scored. Okay. But still, I mean, that's that's a situation where Wright is being aggressive. The, the play was there. Pittman was open. Rivers overthrew the ball. You have a guy in Rivers who's a borderline Hall of Famer who's a 17-year vet, 39 years old. He should be able to make that play most of the time. I like the fact that he was aggressive. It just didn't work. And then you have a defense in in, um, in, um, Indianapolis who should have done a much better job not allowing Buffalo to score. 
I mean, shit, even if you allow them three points, it's like, well, I mean, at least that's something. But allow them to go down and score, which is basically a 14-point turnaround, that's uh, that's huge. But again, that's not something where it's kind of like, oh, Frank Wright, what the fuck are you doing? He made the right call on that play. Because if they if you kick the field goal, then you turn the argument if they lose to, oh, well, you know, how in the world is he going to be going for a field goal? You know, you know, he needs touchdowns to beat this team. So damn if you do, damn if you don't in that situation. Wendell's World in Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Other games this weekend, as I mentioned before, on Saturday, you're going to have the Los Angeles Rams playing the Green Bay Packers at 435. Then, as I mentioned, the Baltimore Ravens at the Buffalo Bills at 8.15. Then on Sunday, the first game at 3.05 Eastern Standard Time. It's going to be Cleveland at Kansas City. And then to wrap it up, it's going to be the Battle of the Old Heads at 6.40 Eastern Standard Time. The Tampa Tom Brady Buccaneers versus the Drew Brees-led New Orleans Saints. Man, from the weekend, you know what? I think that Rams-Packer game is going to be a little bit closer now. Here's a situation where we don't know what's the status of Aaron Donald, if he is going to play, how how much of the injury that caused him to miss uh, the last part of the uh, Seattle Seahawks game, how much is that going to be affecting him going forward. But the matchup between Devontae Harris and Jalen Ramsey is going to be quite tasty. And Aaron Jones, let's see what he does to establish some type of running game. And mentioned before, there's been some instances in the Aaron Rodgers-led Green Bay Packers to where coming off of two weeks has not been as advantageous as, as uh, many people would have thought. I remember, as I mentioned a couple of podcasts ago, when they went 15-1 in the regular season, the year that the Giants beat the Patriots for their second championship, that uh, their first game out, they faced the Giants and were flat as flat can be and fell behind by halftime. I think the end of the first half, the Giants completed a Hail Mary, which was kind of like the the, the the icing on the cake in terms of the way the game was going. And we've seen this every year in terms of a team, a number one or number two seed, normally a number two seed or one seed in, in the playoffs, come out after taking a couple of weeks off. Not only did they have the bye week, the first week of the playoffs, but many times they rest the majority of their starters in the last uh, game of the season. And they come out, and it takes a while, and you're playing the team with momentum. You're playing the team that has been playing in playoff mode for four or five or six weeks. Sometimes those things happen. And you're speaking about a team in Green Bay which has wrapped up their playoff spot or wrapped up their position in the NFC North. And not saying that they coasted because they still were in uh, challenge with the New Orleans Saints to see who was going to get that number one seed in the NFC playoffs, but when you're playing a team like the Rams, and we don't know the situation with Jared Goff, but Sean Payton versus Sean McVay, as far as offense versus offense is concerned, it's, it's going to be, again, quite tasty. But I think the Rams' defense is going to cause some problems for Green Bay. It's not going to be, as since, since the game against the Packers is not going to be at 8 o'clock at night, the temperature will not be as uh, pitiful as it could have been so that's advantage Los Angeles. But again, it's going to depend on the health of Aaron Darnold. And also, what are we going to get from Jared Goff? And if we're not going to get too much from Jared Goff, and we're going to have to rely on that running game, 
how well will that running game for Los Angeles do against the Green Bay Packers defense? In Baltimore versus Buffalo, again, who's going to be able to control the line of scrimmage? Who's going to be able to control what they do best? Lamar is going to be wanting to be able to run the ball. J.K. Dobbins, that group is going to be looking to run the ball, take the ball out of the hands of Josh Allen and the uh, Bills defense. And how is Allen and them boys going to uh, deal with Lamar on the offensive side of the ball and, and put up some points to themselves if Buffalo puts up 31-35 points. I just don't think that Baltimore is built to score that many, and especially against a team like uh, Buffalo, whose defense has been coming around and, and improving. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. And then again, we have Kansas City and Cleveland. We talked about that game a little bit earlier before. And Tampa Bay and New Orleans, man, I, you know, you don't want to take anything away from the Chicago Bears defense because Chicago's, you know, the Bears defense can get lost in, lost in the shuffle because their offense is so anemic. Their record doesn't indicate how good that defense is. They played well on Sundays. It's kind of hard when you're always out there and being put in bad field position, uh, field position by your offense who can't do anything to continually try and make plays, make plays, make plays. So maybe that kind of maybe that kind of masks some of the things that New Orleans was doing. But man, I take a look at that offense with Drew Brees at the quarterback and thinking wise, he's right there. But I mean, how is he going to be dealing with that team from Tampa with Tom Brady playing as well that he's as he's playing? And yeah, I understand the last time they met that New Orleans embarrassed him. That could be really an advantage for Tampa Bay. Now New Orleans is, is too experienced and too professional to think that that's going to be a carry. There's going to be some type of carryover effect from the the, the beatdown and the embarrassment they delivered the Buccaneers on Sunday Night Football. They understand that that was just a one-off game. Shit like that happens every once in a while. So I don't think that the New Orleans mindset is to expect that same Tampa Bay Buccaneers team. But I, I, I do think in a situation like that, a lot of times when a team loses, the one who lost is the one who's making the adjustments. So Todd Bowles and Byron Leftwich and Bruce Arians, I wonder what they're going to be coming up with to kind of counteract what happened the last time they played. The main takeaway from that game was how bad Brady played and the lack of just trying to run the ball even a little bit against the Saints. And the turnovers that was caused by the defense of New Orleans led to a lot of points for the Saints. So I don't think Brady is going to be that porous again against the Saints. And again, you have Drew Brees, who's not close to 100% with the crack ribs. Kamara had a good game, but if it gets into a shootout or if it gets into a situation where Tampa looks like they're going to be able to put some points on the board, is New Orleans going to be able to keep keep up? So those are my concerns and my thoughts for Wild Card Weekend. Still taking a look at this James Harden deal. It looked like it was a 14 deal for Harden. As I'm telling you this here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast with your host, Wendell Wallace. It was Cleveland, Indiana, Brooklyn, Brooklyn, and the uh, and the Houston Rockets. So Karis LeVert is going to, what does it say here? Karis LeVert is going to Indianapolis. Indianapolis, the, the Pacers want to change the way they play. They want to speed it up a little bit more. So getting uh, LeVert will help that way. 
Looks like Houston just is, is going to get just a bevy of picks. I think they got first four first round pick, four swaps, a couple of second round picks. Uh, let me see. Cleveland has two players of no caring, and the Nets get themselves James Harden. I wonder if this is in response to what's going on with Kyrie. There's reports out there that Kyrie was seen at a party or some nonsense like that, and I'm just wondering if. James Harden is going to be the be the guy to offset if something weird happens with uh, Kyrie. But then again, we are talking about James Harden, so I don't know. I don't know weird, but he's um, he's unique. He's different. The guy who I'm most concerned about is Steve Nash. If I'm someone who cares about him, if I'm his wife and child and family member and good friends and all this kind of stuff, I'm like. You're going to be all right, man, because now you're going to have to deal with Kyrie, KD, and James Harden. Good luck to you on that one. That's uh, that's an interesting look right then, right there. James and KD are reunited, but when they played together in Oklahoma, that was a far different circumstance than it was now. James Harden was just trying to be the best sixth man who ever played and be a guy who's going to be complimentary to Westbrook and Durant. Now you take a look at the way James Harden has evolved into one of the best players in the NBA and one of the most prolific scorers in NBA history. I mean, how is he going to fit in? How is this all going to work? Again, the Kyrie situation, how long is it going to take for James to get back in shape? What's going to be his role on the team? I mean, KD, Kyrie, where does James fit in all this? As far as scoring opportunities are concerned, the way that James Harden plays, it's KD. And Kyrie going to be uh, cool with that. And really, if you think about the way that James Harden plays, it's really a little bit the way that KD and Kyrie Irving play. The fact that they need the ball in their hands. The fact that those guys uh, create shots from them for themselves. Really are not guys who you know run an offense to where they're going to be getting the ball and then shooting or setting up others. So, we'll see. We'll see. But talk about the NBA Talk about the NBA another time, another podcast, the next podcast. But as I mentioned before, these football games for Saturday, Rams versus Packers, Ravens versus Bills. Then on Sunday, Cleveland versus Kansas City, Tampa Bay versus New Orleans. Guys, gals, everybody, are you ready for some football? Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Attention podcast listeners. Wendell's World in Sports is going to be descending. Please return to your seat. Put on your seatbelt, please. Take up your uh, tray table. Push back your recliners. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the descension into what's going to be the rest of your day after listening to this podcast. If you're listening to work, hopefully this will Hopefully this podcast got you to your first break. If you're out there 
driving around. Hopefully this will help you get to your next destination without falling asleep. Hopefully if you're at work and you were starting to listen to this after you listened to some music after your first break that this held you until lunchtime. If you're listening to this podcast after lunch and that 4 p.m. doldrums hit you and your eyes start to get a little bit heavy, hopefully this has kept you going a little bit longer. I am your companion. I am your passenger. I am your friend. I am the guy who's going to get you through the situation with my passion, with my understanding, with my knowledge, with everything that I bring to my podcast, Wendell's World of Sports. So I thank you very much for listening. When you're done listening, please have yourself a great day. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. All right, at NFL News, the Philadelphia Eagles fired Doug Peterson on Monday. Peterson was expected to remain the coach despite going 4-11-1 and Carson Wentz hitting his, his guts this season. But according to a source or sources, Multiple meetings with team owner Jeffrey Lurie over the past week left his boss unconvinced that Peterson had a sound vision for how to address the myriad issues facing the team, which basically means uh, we're not trading or we're not getting rid of Carson Wentz. What are you going to do about this? You're going to do a situation where Jalen Hurts might be in play. Eh, yeah, not seeing it, not buying it, not wanting it. See you later. So the Eagles moved on from the only Super Bowl winning coach in their franchise history. And that's also less than three years after he accomplished the feat. Again, 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 again. I'm not saying that there aren't major problems as far as, as black coaches getting an opportunity. Because there are. But then again, if Doug Peterson was black in this situation, this is a guy, yeah, he had a bad record, 4-11. But not only did he win a Super Bowl less than three years ago, but he also uh, led the team to the playoffs, I believe it was last year also. So this wasn't a guy who was dealing with multiple four, five, six win seasons. So if this guy was black, and I got to admit, I'd be the one screaming and shouting and yelling, Bloody Mary, and this is ridiculous, and this is horrible, another black man's getting screwed, and this is what happens in the NFL, and someone bring on Angela Rye and Jamel Hill and the rest of them folks to talk about how disgraceful this was, and Roger Goodell, you're a no-good racist son of a bitch, and these white, rich Republicans, billionaires don't know what the fuck's going on, and hallelujah, blah, 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 blah. all this kind of stuff, you're right, I would be there screaming, shouting, yelling. Under these, under these circumstances, if Doug Peterson was black. And also, I think one of the reasons he was let go was because Lurie wanted to have him fire some of his assistants who happened to be black. And Peterson was like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stick with what, what I have going right now. And I also think that led that played a part in Peterson losing his job. So I just, I just store these things away. I really do, because when we're speaking about you know, racism and head coaches not getting an opportunity who are black and this, that, and the other, yeah, those, those things are definitely true. And there's a, a level of racism in the NFL that needs to be dealt with, which is concerning. No question about it. But I also think that sometimes we oversimplify, oversimplify things by talking about, hey, well, if you're white, you know, you get all the chances in the world and this, that, and the other. And if you're black, you get screwed. Now, in a situation like this, there's a strong... There's a strong argument that can be made that, you know, Peterson was let go a little bit too early. Now, what he did in the end of the season against Washington, where he basically tanked the fourth quarter, unacceptable, inexcusable, and that's a fireable offense. But, again, when you have the cachet of winning 
a Super Bowl and the way that he did it and the team that he beat and the coach that was on the other side. And then again, after being a playoff contender two years ago, to go ahead and then and to fire the guy after basically one bad season. And again, a lot of other things led into it. His relationship with Carson Wentz, um, his relationship with his assistant coaches and not letting them hang out to dry or not letting them be the scapegoat. A lot of other things came to the play, came into the discussion and which led up to Peterson losing his job. But again, just to, uh, I'm going to remember that. I'm going to remember that because I'm going to compare it because we still talk about Jim Caldwell getting fired from the Lions. I think in a situation like this, I mean, it's a strong argument can be made that, well, if we're speaking about coaches who got, you know, who got um, screwed, I mean, you can make an argument that Peterson got screwed more than Jim Caldwell did in this situation. Now, I'm just saying, you can make that argument. If you want to disagree, I understand it. But, I mean, championships, how many Super Bowls did Jim Caldwell have with the um, Detroit Lions? And how many playoff wins did he have? So I'm just saying, I'm just saying, it's not like, you know, without question one way or the other, but, you know, white white coaches get the, uh, sometimes can get screwed too. So moving forward, it looks like uh, Chris Mortensen is reporting that Carson Wentz was planning to ask for a trade because his relationship with Peterson had been, was fractured beyond repair and, Again, when you're speaking about a guy who was given a $128 million contract extension that, you know, and I guess maybe Laurie and Howie Roseman feels that uh, Wentz is going to be their guy. Well, if they're so confident about that, why in the hell did they go ahead in the second round? Well, at least Roseman, why in the hell in the second round did he go ahead and draft himself Jalen Hurts? So th- th- all this, this, all of this just leads into a situation where, look, I mean, this could be, if it plays out right, maybe the Carson Wentz, Jalen Hurts' combo can be similar to Drew Brees and Taysom Hill. Who knows where both of those guys are valuable in their roles. Maybe it's a situation where this year where you had Phillip Rivers doing the heavy lifting, but in certain situations, Jacoby Brissett would come in for a quarterback sneak or something like that to pick up the tough yardage. So there was a role on a team for both quarterbacks, not just the traditional role of taking the snaps under centers and being that traditional quarterback. So, it all depends. It all depends. So if you're taking a look at this job, which has now come open, I mean, the, the good news if you're a coach for the Philadelphia Eagles, the next head coach is the fact that you'll be in the worst division in football, in professional football. The winner of the division was one tanked game or quarter away from getting in the playoffs at 6-10. and 10. And currently, when you take a look at the Eagles' salary cap, now they're going to have some situation with this because there's $70 million over the cap for 2021. So... It's a, it's going to be a, a long game in terms for those guys to uh, get back to where they can start replenishing some of the uh, assets that they lost. Jason Peters, Zach Ertz, safety Jalen Mills. Don't know if they're going to be coming back. There's going to be a transition possibly. There's no, there's no um, talent at the wide receiver position for them to compete. There's no position. Uh, there's no talent at the running back position for though for the Eagles to compete. So again, you're going to have to rebuild your offensive line for that team. So a coach who's going to be coming in is going to have to deal with that, and he's going to have to accept the fact that Howie Roseman 
as the GM is going to have the final say on personnel issues. So he's going to be allowed to help shop for the groceries, but the person who's going to be ultimately the decision maker in terms of what groceries to buy for the coach to cook with is going to be Howie Rosen. So the Eagles situation, and now it's the pressure's on Carson Wentz. Because it's like, all right, man, you know what? You're the one that didn't like Doug Peterson. You're the one who was talking about, I want to be traded. Okay, oh, for, we, we chose you over him in essence. So what are we going to do moving forward? Now, whose fault was it? Is it really the situation where Carson Wentz just needed a new voice, needed a new coach, needed a new direction to put him back on track to continue his journey to be one of the better quarterbacks in the NFL moving forward in the next couple of years? Or was it a situation where, you know, twinkle, twinkle, little star, um, the Carson Wentz train only went so far in terms of him being a franchise quarterback and he was damaged goods in that reputation. So we'll see moving forward. Don't think that uh, if I'm Eric Bieniemy or somebody like that, pass working with Carson Wentz, working with that Wentz hurts situation, then you're going to have to also try to uh, explain what are you going to be using, what are you going to be doing with both of those guys moving forward. Can Jalen Hurts play the role of a Taysom Hill? If Carson Wentz is going to assume the mantle of being the franchise quarterback that many people thought he had nailed down without question in the year 2017, so... That'll be interesting. Wendell's World in Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Bill Belichick, head coach of the Philadelphia, Jesus, of the New England Patriots. He's not going to accept the Medal of Freedom Award given by the fucking asshole piece of shit, shit wannabe dictator who hopefully they'll fucking throw his ass out and the rest of his fucking mega asshole losers. Um, he announced Monday night that he will not accept the Presidential Medal of Freedom. He said, quote, remaining true to the people, team and country I love outweigh the benefits of an individual award. In the one paragraph statement, Belichick did not say explicitly why he turned down the offer from the jackass that's in the White House now, who he had called a friend. Not going to hold that against him. Instead, Belichick explained the decision has been made not to move forward with the award in the wake of last week's deadly siege on the U.S. Capitol. Or... In Bill Belichickian, he said, <clears throat> you know, instead of the uh, decision been made not to move <clears throat> forward with the award in the wake of last week's deadly siege on the you know, so that's uh, basically what it was. Now I know people are sitting up there talking about, oh yeah, yeah, you and your boy Trump, yeah, this that and the other, y'all were friends and this that and the other, you, your boy Brady and Trump, yeah, y'all three, some yeah, y'all were good friends and homies and all this kind of stuff, and you know the only reason why you're doing this because it's a bad look for you, and if the thing didn't happen going down with the U.S. Capitol, that you'd be smiling and the the the, the patriots, I and mean, you got to remember Robert Kraft is the big buddy of. Uh, of that fucking asshole also so it would have been something where you know press releases would have been sent out and everything and pump and parade and all this nonsense concerning this award so really you know I'm, I'm kind of uh, skeptical to say the least and all of a sudden you sitting there going to turn down this this award from your good buddy so there's some skepticism in that. For those who say that, and for those who want to bring up that I don't believe him and everything, I'm not skeptical at all about Belichick turning down this award. Not at all. I really believe that. 
And look, I'm not, I wasn't part of the conversation when he decided to accept or deny the award or when it first came to him. And I don't know Bill Belichick well enough to be absolute in my resolution about his thoughts and feelings about not accepting the award. But the one reason why I say without a, without question, I don't think Bill Belichick is, you know, doing the old okie doke or he really doesn't mean it or he's reading the tea leaves or if he wants to recruit black players the way that the NFL is going right now, that he better save face and be like, ah, yeah, no thanks. But really, he's calling up that fucking asshole right now talking about, hey, you know what? I really wanted to accept this, but, you know, the optics and everything still want to coach for a few years. We got some we got a couple of black free agents that I'm eyeing myself on that I want. So, you know, you know, I'm down with it, Donnie boy. But, you know, it's just not the right look right now. But, uh, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod. I really accept it. And coming from you, this is awesome. And this, that, and the other. The reason why I say that Belichick was sincere and not accepted his award and giving me confidence, confidence that he would be invited to our barbecue was because of his involvement in the past with the Jim Brown American program. If you know that uh, Jim Brown, the legendary running back, one of the greatest football players who ever played, Cleveland Brown, Hall of Famer legend, he set up an American program, I mean, decades and decades ago to uh, help those who are downtrodden, those in the black community who are, you know, on the uh, wrong side of the tracks in terms of doing right and doing wrong. And the American program is something to where, you know, he helps these brothers who are needing of help to uh, turn their lives around. Uh, this is a program that was in, implemented in a couple of uh, penal situations, as uh, uh, penal um, prisons across the country, and it's, it's helped. It's helped a lot of people. It's turned a lot of people's lives around, gangbangers and folks who are doing nothing. The, Ameri- the American program has been fantastic in what it's been doing, and that was all created by Jim Brown. So Belichick has been a longtime supporter of the American program, making donations. And he's, he's even met with gang members. I remember reading an article. In fact, I have it. Jim Brown said about his commitment to the program. He said, quote, he has been face-to-face with my gangsters in, in L.A. and in Cleveland. Belichick is the only person that you would know who has been in my home with these guys. He has been in the hotel room in Cleveland with them. Not only that, he's been to the graduation not only that, he got us our first contract in Rhode Island. And not only that, when he was when he fined his players one year, he gave all the fine money to the to the foundation. So he said when he was in these meetings with these gang members, Brown said Belichick didn't give a speech or a pep talk or anything like that. He didn't he didn't uh, use his white privilege. He didn't say use his you know. I'm your white daddy and I'm going to take care of you because, you know, you black kids really don't know anything and it's up to the white man to show you the right way. No, no. Brown was like he was there to lend support and credibility and allow the gang members to meet him. And what happens is that when someone like that comes into my living room and sits down with them and makes them feel like they have support, they read about this guy and all that and they never expect him to come and sit and down and talk with us and be a regular guy. So, yeah, I'm definitely uh, down with Bill Belichick. I remember Jim Brown talking about, you know, you guys who are sitting up there talking about, I hate white people and all this kind of nonsense. Well, let me tell you something. Remember when Tony Dungy was up there and he was the first black head coach to win a Super Bowl and everybody was like hip, hip, hooray, and everybody thought that I was going to, you know, give some Martin Luther King, Malcolm X speech about how great it was and how downtrodden we've been and all this kind of stuff? No. 
No, when Tony Dungy won the Super Bowl, I mean, I was happy for him, but I would have rather seen Bill Belichick win another Super Bowl. When the New England Patriots played the uh, New England, no, the New England Patriots played the Indianapolis Colts, Dungy versus Bill Belichick, I always rooted for Bill Belichick. And it had nothing to do with Tony Dungy. I highly respect Tony Dungy, but Bill Belichick is my friend. And Bill Belichick, for what he did in terms of uh, helping out with the American with the American program, I'm always going to be rooting for that guy. And in turn, Bill Belichick has always been great, uh, grateful for Jim Brown and his time when he was the coach at Cleveland and how he had his back and the friendship that they they had during that time. So yeah, I mean, Bill Belichick has had Bill Russell come and talk to these talk to his team about leadership and other things. So yeah, man, Bill Belichick is always welcome to the barbecue and, and you know and that type of that type of deal. So yeah, good good for him. Good for him on that one. So there's no altruistic reasons and there's no shadiness in terms of why he turned down the Medal of Freedom from the worst president that we've had since, uh, I guess you could say maybe Andrew Jackson. No, maybe Andrew Johnson after Lincoln. I don't even consider that motherfucker a president anymore. I don't even consider him less of a human being for all I... For all I can deal with them. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Let me end with this. Something off the grid. I'm a big um, capital punishment guy. I really am. <laughs> I, I don't know if I've ever made it clear before, but uh, you know, when people have committed crimes, heinous crimes, when they get executed, that's, not, that's a cause for celebration because that's one horrible human being no longer living, no longer breathing, and no longer our tax dollars is going to keep him alive. So, when someone is executed, I'm very happy. I think it's a great day. We need to have a lot more executions for people who have committed heinous crimes, who have been found guilty without a reason, without a reasonable doubt. Those who have committed, those who have um, confessed, they have committed horrible crimes. When they get electrocuted or when they get uh, put to sleep, when they, uh, you know, when they die, it's a great day. It's an awesome day. So. In the divided, racist, ignorant, selfish states of America, they just executed the first female, federal female inmate since 1953. Uh, let me see. Lisa Montgomery, 52 years old, was pronounced dead at 1.31 a.m. after receiving a lethal injection at the federal prison complex in Terre Haute, Indiana. What they should have done, they should have strangled that bitch. Montgomery, what was she in for? What was she executed for? Well, she killed 23-year-old Bobby Joe Stennett in northwest Missouri, Back in 2004, she used a rope to strangle Stennett, who was eight months pregnant, and then cut the baby from the baby girl from the womb with a kitchen knife. Montgomery took the child and took the child with her and attempted to pass it off as her own. I uh, read I've, I've known this story for like twenty something years. I first saw this story on uh, American Justice with Bill Curtis and A and E when they used to have really good programming. They used to have investigative reports and City Confidential and American Justice. I mean, that was just that was just must-watch program for me. But uh, yeah, I, I saw this story, and you know, throughout the years, it kind of slips your mind. But yeah, Lisa Montgomery, I was like, when are they ever going to execute that bitch? Because you check in every couple of years, and she'd still be sitting there on death row, and it's like, damn, they haven't killed her yet. Let's go, man. But um, yeah, it was it was just awful. So I'm I'm very happy. The only reason why I bring that up is because of where the crime took place in Skidmore, Missouri. You ever heard of Skidmore, Missouri? 
You ever heard of the Ken Rex McElroy series or uh, a story? How that how that um, town killed the town bully Ken Rex, and nobody um, nobody confessed to it. Basically, they shot him. Like a group of people shot him right in front of the right right in the middle of town. Everybody was not everybody in town, but enough people in town were there to where it was kind of like no one's going to tell on this motherfucker. Whoever shot him, and they were like, nope. Nope, but Ken Rex McElroy was a low-life piece of shit who murdered somebody. The law never did anything. He was a bully. He was a terrorist. He, he was a terrorist. That's what he was. He was a community terrorist who knew that he was above the law, who would kill with impunity and not care because he had a lawyer that would get him out time after time after time after time after time. So when he tried to murder somebody in the co in the uh, jury or the judge suspended his sentence or suspended his trial, they knew that, man, if this motherfucker comes back to town, he's going to find out the person who he should have murdered and then murdered him. So it's either going to be him or us, and it damn sure ain't going to be us. So Ken Rex McElroy, right in the downtown, right there in little old Skidmore, Missouri, was was murdered. He got in his car with his bimbo dumbass wife, who at the time I think um, she was like I don't know, like uh, McElroy married her when she was like fourteen or fifteen. So basically, he was committing statutory rape at the time um, that he married her. And basically, the parents didn't want McElroy to marry the daughter, so McElroy set their house on fire. Kind of be like, yeah, you still want me to uh, not marry your daughter? Yeah, I burned down your house. You tell me no again. Guess what else am I going to do? So they finally relented she married the guy i mean he was much older than the woman who at the time was a girl i think she was like a sophomore in high school or some shit like this and this is a grown-ass man so he married her you know so i think that was his wife number four or five so uh you know basically he was just a bad guy who needed to be exterminated he was a he was a guy who needed to be put in a grave and um what they should have done they should have czar nicholas that whole fucking family so, uh, basically, they got rid of him. They, they shot him in the back of the head. And, you know, police and investigators and the uh, Missouri Federal Bureau of Investigations came by and wanted to uh, find out exactly what happened. And the town folks were like, nope, sorry, not saying anything. Nope, don't know nothing, haven't seen nothing, don't know anything. So, this whole deal is now like, well, you know, the town, the town is now cursed because you killed this bully and no one... Uh, confessed to it, which means he got away with murder, so now the town is cursed. And they used the situation with Lisa Montgomery strangling Bobby Joe Stennett in in uh, Skidmore as one example of this must be the curse of Ken Rex McElroy. No, it was just a fucking lunatic, deranged, very damaged human being who, who did this. She planned it, premeditated, and then you get these fucking assholes sitting there talking about, well, you know, it's like she was damaged and, you know, she had a tough childhood and everything like that. Yeah, that might be the case. Yeah, by reading everything, Lisa Montgomery had a horrible upbringing. Horrible. Gang raped, prostituted, terrible. Absolutely terrible. In that sense, I feel for her. I do have sympathy for her. But you can't go around and fucking kill innocent people. You can't fucking strangle somebody who's pregnant, 23 years old, cut out the fetus, take it as your own, and claim that it is your own. No, 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 no. Bobby Joe Stennett is her name. Bobby Joe Stennett. Bobby Joe Stennett. Bobby Joe Stennett. That's her fucking name. 
So all you fucking ass clowns who want to sit up there and be like, oh, poor Lisa. Oh, this, that, and the other. This is just a crime against humanity. And this is terrible. And this is horrible. And how could you be killing her? And this, that, and the other. That bitch got off easy. What that, what should have happened to that bitch was someone should have strangled her ass and then cut her, then cut her stomach open and taken her insides. That's what should have happened to that woman. Give me a fucking break. Give me a fucking break. And there's a child out there that's being raised not by her mother because fucking Lisa Montgomery murdered her. Fuck you. Somebody did some bullshit like that to my my uh my goddaughter. Goddamn put me in prison for the rest of my fucking life because I will hunt them down to the ends of the earth and try to do everything humanly possible to make the ending of their life as painful and miserable as possible. And if I can't do it, I'll pay somebody to do it. Somebody do some bullshit like that. Well, you know, sexual torture and gang rape as a child. And, well, that bitch should have killed her fucking parents. I don't understand that shit. Well, they always, I'm not a psychologist, psychiatrist, criminal profiler or anything like that. But these guys, Edmund Kemper and all these guys who parents are just horrible, horrible human beings. Uh, Ken Rex, a lot of these guys, you know, uh, Rex Krebs, all of these guys who, you know, just suffered this these horrible atrocities during childhood why do you guys take it out on other people innocent people and females if you're that angry kill your fucking parents hey man if rex krebs wanted to kill the parents who made his life a fucking hell who created a monster like him instead of uh two college females from uh university of santa cruz back in the day if you wanted to kill them instead of killing those girls, I would have given you second-degree murder. I would have said, you know what, spend about 40, 50 years in prison, and you could be up for parole in like 25. I'll go ahead and do that. But when you go ahead and you take Andrea Newhouse and you take a couple, another woman and you hogtie her and you murder her and you put her two innocent, lovely young women who are going to be doing something in life, when you go ahead and murder them, and then you say, well, because, you know, my parents used to, you know, you used to treat me like garbage. Well, then, damn, damn, motherfucker, do that to your parents. Do that to your fucking parents. And yeah, with the criminal justice system, the way that it's skewed, yeah, I understand that, you know, hey, it's, it's tough out there. But goddamn, man, I mean, there's got to be something else. And I mentioned before, if there's something in the trial to where it's like, well, I don't know, man, you know, you're going to convict them on that? Oh, jeez. Or, you know, I, you know, I, I just feel there's something going on with the trial itself. If someone is really, really innocent, then we need to do everything we can to get them out or we need to do everything we can to hear all the evidence. And if it takes 10, 15 years to do that, if it means going through every uh, appeals court that there is, if there's some type of, if the trial isn't like super perfect in terms of evidence being presented or something like that, bad counsel, whatever, I'm all for that, man. I'm not just like, you know, oh, you're found guilty. Let's go ahead and strap you in and, and uh, send you to hell. I'm not. I'm not all about that. If there's any type of discrepancy or question regarding a trial, when it's about the murder of somebody, you want to make sure. I'm quite sure in this country we put an innocent man to death or an innocent woman to death. But you know, you you want to go through every legal chain or avenue possible to make sure that if this person is going to be put to death, then he actually did the crime. So if there's some type of hiccup or something in the process to come to that, well then yeah, my fucking problem is is when they did the crime, 
but from some mitigating circumstance. Well, he has a low IQ. Well, he has a bad background. Well, it's because he's black. Well, it's because he's a Muslim. Oh, well, because he's a man. Oh, yeah, it's something to where, look, if this guy did the crime, he's got to go. I don't give a fuck about his upbringing. I don't care about what happened to him as a kid. I don't care. I don't care if he has a low IQ. I don't care if he uh, has multiple personalities. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. Did he do the crime? Yes, he did the crime. See you, See you later. You've got to go. You've got to go. You've got to go. And the fact that Lisa Montgomery was sexually tortured and gang raped and all those type of things sucks. Horrible. Uh, misstep. Someone else has blood on their hands as far as why wasn't this... Why, why wasn't this brought to so much attention while all of this was going on? So multiple people dropped the ball and multiple people bear responsibility for this. But ultimately, Lisa Montgomery did the crime. Lisa Montgomery knew what she was doing was wrong. Lisa Montgomery knew that murdering somebody was wrong. So this bullshit about she should be fucking spared her life and people should have sympathy for her is fucking bullshit. Because she fucking murdered somebody 23 years old, and then took the baby out of her womb. Fuck you if you want to be talking about saving her goddamn life. Fuck you. You know, I get a little bit upset when I talk about the death penalty. <laughs> so, that's basically on Wendell's World of Sports. Here's my commentary on the death penalty. Shit, man. If it was up to me, man, there'd be a whole bunch of folks who are who would be... I mean, if I was like the Gavin Newsom, come on, man. If I was a, you know... It would be, see you later, Charlie. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's a couple of serial killers that, um, uh, that have died this year. But uh, there's a whole bunch of death people on death row who have committed the crime. They've, they've committed the crime. I mean, they're not they're not like, no, 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 wasn't me, wasn't me. Yeah, they committed the crime. That, you know, I would be putting, let me see, today is Tuesday by Wednesday afternoon. Uh, there'd be a whole lot of dead motherfuckers who kill people dead. Throw them in a landfill. I don't give a fuck. Just get rid of them and move on. All right. We have landed. We have reached our destination. I want to thank you very much for listening to my podcast. Be safe. Be good. Be kind to each other. Except for those who murder somebody um, because they want to. Because they want to have their child. Do all that good stuff. Live. Love. Be happy. And all those good things. All right. I'll see you next time. Music.
impossible to face When someone else instead of me Always seems to know the way Then I look at you And the world's alright with me Just one look at you And I know it's Seemed impossible to fail. 